Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. It's Tuesday, the 18th of September. It's just gone six o'clock. Here till nine, and plenty on the show this morning, including... More homeless families are being temporarily placed in bed and breakfast in Hertfordshire. Have you ever helped a homeless person? 81333, start your text 3CR. Also, I want to hear your stories about doctors as complaints about doctors are on the rise. And there are more than 150 drivers over the age of 100 with driving licences. Should older people be allowed to drive as long as they like? You can email 3cr at bbc.co.uk, text 81333, starting your text 3CR, or give me a call 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. I had one of those mornings when I, I just could not wake up. I, I was I was having a lovely little doze, uh, and then I woke up and it was like twenty past three. And I thought, oh, I've got I've got another forty minutes. I'll have it's close. And then I was in a proper sleep, and I, I was I dreamt that I was um, in a car and I witnessed a motorcycle accident and I had to stay in the hospital overnight and no one would discharge me even though I was fine. I had to stay there as a witness. So what I'm trying to say is I'm tired. That's the roundabout way of saying it. Pretty much. I don't know why I bothered going into the dream. No, there's nothing boring. More boring than hearing another person's dream. Now, moving on, swiftly. More homeless families are being temporarily placed in bed and breakfast accommodation in Hertfordshire. It's gone up over 250% in the last year, according to new research from the National Housing Federation. The study shows that the number of families in this situation has increased by 75% across the whole of the east of England. Have you or your family ever been in a situation like this? Well, one of our producers here on The Breakfast Team was in this uh, situation when she was younger. She joins me now in the studio, rather reluctantly, I have to say, but you, we, thank you for coming in. You prefer, Dashi, to be kind of the other side of the, the glass, don't you? Not sitting behind the microphone yes, with me. Yes, I'm probably more comfortable behind... Not behind the mic. <laughs> we, will, we will keep this as brief and as painless as we can. Now, I, I, I was surprised to find this out, Dashi, that you were homeless at some point. How old were you when this happened, and, and how did it happen? I was just going on for 12, mm. and I was surprised to find myself homeless too. Um, well, what happened was my dad been ill for a number of years, and he got a lot worse, and his business ended up folding up, and my mum became a full-time care for he him. He had his own business. He had so his up own until business. then, it had been quite successful. Up until then, it had been, it, yeah, it had been fairly successful, but he'd got sicker and sicker. He, yeah. couldn't, um, he couldn't really cope with it. That folded. My mum became his full-time carer. Yeah. And, you know, they couldn't keep up, you know, to put it bluntly, they couldn't keep up with their mortgage repayments. So the, our house was repossessed and we found ourselves homeless and having to be put into a and b um, first mm. of all, before we were placed in temporary accommodation. So in how many permanent. of you were there? How many in your family? Four of us. There was my mum, my dad, myself and my younger sister. Yeah. How old was she? She, she would have been about 10. So I was 12 and she was 10. And what's, what's the process from... Not being able to keep up with the mortgage repayments, which can be tough for everybody. I think the interesting thing here is this could happen to anybody. Mm. We're all just, you know, a few payments away from being homeless. What's the process from not being able to pay a few payments to then being moved into a B and B? How does how does that work? Um. Well, I did it. Did it? I mean, I, did, was it, did it happen really quickly? Does it happen over a year? Is it a couple of months? What's to be honest, I th- I I knew I knew it was going to happen for a few months. Right. So I mean, I don't. I think I was probably protected quite a lot yeah. from what was actually happening. But I knew that eventually we were moving out of the flat I'd lived in pretty much most of my life and that we'd be moved into this um, one-bed place. It, it all happened quite quickly, actually. I think 
I came home from school one day actually and everything was packed up. Wow. All really? our stuff was gone. Yep. My mum struggled. I mean, cuz the thing the thing when you move is you, you've got you've got lots of stuff and you've got to get rid of it. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I lost so many of my books that I'd kept from very young cuz she she literally gave them away to charity or she threw them away. And she was just finding friends who could take some of our stuff in. Mm. And and then the rest was actually just it was it was pretty much given away. If I ask anything that's impersonal and improper, tell me and I'll move on. Can I ask, what was wrong with your dad? Um, he'd suffered two strokes right. and he became paralysed down the left side yeah. of his body. So he couldn't, he couldn't really work anymore. My mum moved to becoming his full-time carer. So I was thinking, as a, as a dad myself, the, the thing you want to do more than anything is protect your kids and look after your kids and make sure they've got a nice home and they're fed and stuff like that. For your dad and your mum, that must have been incredible an incredibly painful place to be in to not only be ill but then to lose the home that the kids had grown up in yeah i think you know i i I can't even begin to imagine what it was like for them Mm. i think particularly for my mum she you know she had two small kids she didn't really have any family that she could rely on as Mm. well i think that would have probably helped matters and having i think having to cope with a very ill husband and i had just started secondary school and I put, you know, I think I was 12 at the time. There were, there were loads of things I was going through, new school, new friends, yeah. going through puberty. Um, it, it, was, it, was really, it, was really, it was a really hard time and, it, you know, it wasn't something I'd ever envisaged. I think it was a real wake-up call for me yeah. at being 12. I, I just never expected that. What do you remember of, of being in a and b I, remem- I remember it being very brown. Everything, everything in the hotel was brown and or, or dark dark sort of maroon and i remember when we moved in it was it was a room and it was smaller than the studio and it had one tiny double bed Mm. two single beds cramped in a small chest of drawers and a tv on top and then there was a bathroom off the side of it all four of you for all four of us and there was no there was literally no space for us to walk between the beds it was pretty much you open the door and there was a you know three mattresses wow. the studios i should say is about 12 foot by i don't know 15 it, it was foot, much like smaller it was probably about a good half the size of this to three quarters wow and it it, it, it i it was just i'd never well you know I'd, I'd never expected to be in that situation i never lived in anything like that and you know i remember the bathroom being filled every morning with flying ants and you you drowned them all and they'd just come back again and you know it was it was it was one mm. of those typical horror school like horror nightmare stories you hear that there were cockroaches and flying terrible. ants it yeah it was awful I, I, what were the other people like in the the other rooms i i actually made some very good friends there <laughs> i think it was around the time um the bed and breakfast kid came out by jacqueline wilson okay. i remember reading that and finding it quite funny because it was a lot it was sort of it, it it tended to some degree to mirror my own experience but and i made some good friends there, but you know it was all but there were some unsavory characters i remember there was a couple living there and i we, you know we were aware that there was domestic violence involved yeah. with them yeah. and there were people there who were on drugs and not a great environment for a 12 year old and, and a younger sister to be growing up in no i it's one of those things, you know, I look back on it now and I think, God, it was difficult. And it was difficult mm. at the time, it was. And I think, you know, I, 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 but it's one of those things that you also, you just have to do because yeah. you don't have any other option. But it was, it was hard. I remember going to school and I just started in year seven and I used to dread things like group projects mm. and having to give my number out because effectively what that would mean is I'd have to give the number of the B&B hotel we were in mm. and then say, so this is the number. And you have to ask for room 214. 
and they'd go why do we have to ask for room 214 do you live in a hotel and i'd i'd say yeah I do. And, and I'd, I'd sort of say it in a way that, you know, invited no more questions. Yeah. And I'm sure some of them, some of my friend's parents' guests, but I never, you know, I... At the age of 12, things like that are, are big important. deals. They're yeah, important, and I was, I was going through puberty at the same time and having to live in that environment. Yeah. You know, with my dad in the bed next, literally right there, my mum and sister, that it was... Uh, it was it was really bleak. <laughs> You're in, but it's not so bleak now. You're in council accommodation now. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, well, my mum... It's obviously... Uh, my family were placed into temporary accommodation yep. to, um, about a year after that. So you were in B&B for a year? In B&B wow. for about a year. Then we were placed into temporary accommodation for about two or three years. Mm. And then we were moved into a permanent, ac- permanent accommodation when one became available. Okay. Dashi, listen, I know you're uncomfortable coming in. I appreciate you coming in. I think you told your, st- your story excellently. So thank oh. you very much. Uh, that's Dashi, who's one of our production team here, telling her uh, story about being in a B&B. Has it ever happened to you? It's on the increase uh, in beds, hearts and bucks. 08459 455 555. Uh, and also, we are kind of I- I- expanding this to talk about homelessness in general. Would you ever help a homeless person? Is it something that you would do? Give us a call, 08459 455 555. Speak to you after this. Gilbert O'Sullivan, get down. I think Gilbert O'Sullivan is grossly overlooked as one of Britain's greatest songwriters. <laughs> is he from Beds, Hearts and Bucks? If he is, we'll get him in. If not, we shan't bother. I know how this works. Don't you worry. Uh, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. It's 6.15 exactly. It's Tuesday the 18th of September. These are your headlines this morning on BBC Three Counties Radio. The number of homeless families temporarily living in B&Bs is on the rise in the three counties. In Hertfordshire, it's gone up by 250%. The General Medical Council has revealed that the number of complaints about doctors in the UK has reached a record high. In sport, Lewis Hamilton has played down talk about an uncertain future with McLaren and stated he is still 100% focused on claiming his second Formula One title with the British team. We'll have a full weather bulletin shortly. And coming up, the number of complaints about doctors, as you've just heard, has reached a record high. I want to hear your stories. Have you got any dodgy doctor stories? I- I'll tell you mine in a bit, but uh, if you've got any stories about them, 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. We talked yesterday about the St John Ambulance um, <clears throat> advert and their new campaign to get people, more people doing first aid. I see in the Daily Mail that uh, the, uh, there have been several complaints about the advert. <clears throat> that was screened during Downton Abbey. Shocked! Down- the Daily Mail do like a bit of drama, though. Shocked Downton Abbey viewers have complained to advertising watchdogs after a commercial showing a man choking to death in front of his family was screened. Um, th- th- some people saying, uh, th- th- writing on Twitter, y- you can gather all of your news sources from Twitter these days. One viewer said, gosh, St John's Ambulance have just managed to make the most harrowing advert I've ever seen. Another said it was too graphic. I wonder how many complaints they actually had, because surely something like that, it needs to be shocking to have an impact, doesn't it? I saw the ad yesterday. I didn't think it was too bad. The more I do this job, the more the Daily Mail becomes my favourite newspaper. I know, it's terrifying, isn't it? What on earth is happening? It's just because a lot of it is, is I think, is, is completely nuts to tosh. But there's a brilliant picture of, um, where's he gone now? Where's he gone? Of, of uh, John Travolta looking incredibly like Mr Spock. They've compared the two. I do find John Travolta's hair fascinating. I don't want to, you know, cast any aspersions because, I, you know, but it's, mm, it, it's a strange texture. Is it? If you ever had an action man 
uh, with, they had, he had that kind of furry head that was very shortly cropped, but kind of a furry head. John Travolta has got action man hair. Oh, I know. How odd is that? Uh, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. It's 21 minutes past six. We're talking about homelessness uh, as the figures re- revealed that there are more people going into temporary accommodation in beds, hearts and bucks. It's up quite significantly. And we want to expand that slightly to ask you, would you ever help a homeless person? Is that something you would do? Because I know... Uh, 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 I'm always slightly reluctant to give money because you never know, do you? I, 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 you never know what that money's going to go on. But I've bought cups of tea and a sandwich before. If there's, if, I, if there's someone outside Tesco or Sainsbury's or something and I'm going in for a sandwich, I always ask, you want a sandwich, mate? And uh, not always, but occasionally, and, and, and go and buy them one. There's no harm in that. Is that. That's not encouraging any form of problem, is it? Or maybe you think it is. Could you let me know? 81333 is the text number. Start your text, 3CR. Or you can give me a, a call. Would you ever, have you ever, helped a homeless person? 08459 455555. Five. More of us are complaining about doctors. Not the hit television series, actual doctors. The General Medical Council say that in the last year, complaints have gone up by 23%. The GMC's chief executive is Neil Dixon. We are seeing a a pretty relentless increase in the number of complaints to the General Medical Council, both from patients but also from organisations. I don't think this should be a cause for worry or anxiety. Indeed, I think it is about rising patient expectations on the one hand, and on the other hand, within the NHS and other organisations, better monitoring of doctors and a greater willingness of doctors and other health professionals to draw attention to problems where they exist. Well, unsurprisingly, the thing that people complain most about is when their treatment has gone wrong. So if they've been misdiagnosed or their case hasn't been followed up, those issues are obviously very important to patients. The GMC says standards are not slipping, but that we're more prepared to speak out when we're not happy. Well, let's get more of this uh, from our reporter, Gavin Lee. Good morning, Gavin. Morning, the GMC is saying the complaints don't necessarily show that care is worse, but yeah. that expectations are greater. Is that right? Yeah, essentially that we're getting better at complaining over the years. And uh, the, these figures show that people, according to the GMC, feel a lot more empowered. And it's not just that in, in doctor services, but across the board, complaints in other healthcare services tend to be um, better in, in terms of the people responding to it. And they all, would also argue that the monitoring of doctors and other health services is, is much greater so the GMC is is perhaps you know, a term that's more banded about so people know about it they know to complain to them about it it's not the universal feeling within the healthcare service about this though you've got the patient association that's that's seen these figures and they raise questions about the quality of care they pick up on this area which is very high in the list of complaints which is um, to do with GPs and communication and what they feel the patients feel is a lack of dignity and respect that they're getting for things like you know whether it's care plans or prognosis that people are given or perhaps just a general pa- patronising attitude or not being felt not not having the feeling of a a quality when you go into to a doctor's surgery or your gp surgery that's high on the list and the patient association said that does need to be looked at but just to step back from it and look at the, the past five years every single year since 2007 there's been a steady rise and if you look at the actual figures for the past two and compare them just over 7,000 complaints in 2010 2011 the last um, date looked at uh, that figure increased to just under 8,800 
most of them didn't go to full-scale investigations. They were dealt, I think 5,000 dealt with. At the early stage, the doctor was either told or it wasn't passed on for any more investigation. 2,000 of those were fully investigated, and a really small number, 158, led to doctors being struck off or suspended, but many more were, uh, were facing warnings. Who's doing the most complaining, Gavin? Members of the public, 5,665. But I think it's interesting that you've got other doctors and other healthcare staff actually making quite a few complaints mm. as well, second in that list. Then you've got other people in authorities, police officers, coroners, medical directors, making complaints. Uh, possibly not surprising, the, those complained about um, the highest on the list are men, and particularly older men. Doctors over 55 are the highest subjects of complaints, far more so than any uh, female doctors. And you've got the highest on the list, GPs. Probably not surprising because they're on the front line and they've got most of the face-to-face encounters, followed by psychiatrists and then third and most complained about are surgeons. And But one thing worth saying as well, you know, every single... Um, year there are millions of face-to-face interactions between doctors and patients i think it possibly puts that figure into perspective that it's not as many as as some thought there might be this year uh, and has the department of health commented on this yeah briefly the health minister has commented this morning dr dan poulter to say that uh, the gmc is right to, to actually do something to better understand what's behind this rise in complaints by you know advertising more for people to complain and it's agreed that it doesn't necessarily mean medical standards are falling i think we'll hear Maureen from the from the health ministry later on today. I think this is such an evocative issue that people often have so many feelings about their care, given how much time and money people put into the NHS. That we'll probably get a, a fuller statement from from the health ministry later this afternoon. Gavin, thank you very much. Our reporter Gavin Lee. There, uh, the number of complaints about doctors has increased. Okay, it's your turn. What what are your dodgy doctor stories? We've all got them, haven't we? I'm really lucky. My GP is pretty much excellent. I go in there, I tell him what's wrong, and um, he'll refer me to the hospital, he'll give me some medicine, he'll, he'll do whatever is necessary. The GP that my baby sees, not quite so good. We, it's a different surgery for some reason. When I went to register there, it was, it, it's complicated and a little bit dull. My little boy, he'd had bronchiolitis, uh, then he got over that, then he got really ill again, was being sick, had a really high temperature, was very upset. We took him to the doctor... Um, and the doctor not only misdiagnosed him and said, oh, it's bronchiolitis again, don't worry, give him some Calpol, he'll be fine. It wasn't. He actually had something wrong with his kidney, which is an ongoing problem, and had to spend four nights in hospital. But also, he was on the phone for a lot of it. He got a phone call in the middle of seeing my baby, who he misdiagnosed, and was diagnosing someone over the telephone. Now, that's pretty poor show, isn't it? What's your story? 08459 455 555. Thank you very much, Catherine. Good morning. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. It's 6.32. Plenty coming up in the show this morning, including we're asking for your dodgy doctor stories. Uh, Would you ever help a homeless person? And also, more on this uh, potential lap dancing club that could be opening in Ampthill. Across beds, hearts and bucks, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. As always, you can text in 81333, start your text 3CR, or you can give us a call, 08459 455 555. Let's go to... Um, oh, we've got Mick in Bedford. Good morning, Mick. Good morning, young man. Oh, hey, well, listen, Mick, you can come in any time you want. You're, this is the first time I've been referred to as a young man on this show. Good for you. Well, well done. You're, you're a lot younger than I am, anyway. I shan't ask. Let's not go there. Mick, what, what's your... Uh, you're calling about homeless people. 
Um, yeah, years ago I was doing some flooring in Cambridge and uh, it was getting late in the evening and I thought, oh, I'm dying of hunger. And I've been told to say it was a fast food restaurant. Excellent. Um, I got one, buy one, get one free. Wonderful. So I slipped in, got a burger and a Coke. And I thought, oh, got half... You're making me hungry, Mick. Yeah, I got halfway through this thing and I thought, oh, I don't want the other one. And there was a guy on the pavement yeah. with his dog. Yeah. I jumped out of my van, I said, would you like this? Um, otherwise, I'm going to bin it. He said, oh, so he took it, jumped back in my van, and what was the first thing this guy did? Take half the burger out and gave to his dog. And that stuck with me for years, that has. Now, are, <laughs> now are, you, are you upset by the fact he gave half his burger to his dog? Because that, to me, uh, sounds like the greatest generosity a man could do, sharing his food with his dumb animal friend. It was. That dog was, um, that was his best friend, and I saw him about 18 months later. Yeah. Still with his dog, he's still got his woolly hat, and his dog was the, the best friend he'd got. See, there you go, that's a nice thing, isn't it? You, had a, you, you gave him, uh, gave a burger and you gave half it to his dog, that's not, you didn't give him the, the Coke, though? Yeah. You gave him that as well? Yeah. Good lad, there you go, Mick, thank you very much. I quite often do that. As I said, I'll, I'll buy a sandwich for a homeless person. Got no qualms like that at all. I quite often sit down and talk with them. There's a guy in, uh, in central London, in Soho, uh, who uh, I, when I used to work in central London, I'd walk past him once or twice a week, and we'd quite often sit down and have a little chat with him, and then the police came along once, <laughs> and they nicked him. And he said, you better go, Ian, Ian, I don't want you getting in trouble. <laughs> so I was off. I don't quite know why they did, and I had a word with the police. and said, what, what's, what seems to be the trouble, officer? Anyway, would you help a homeless person? 08459 455 555. Steve's in Luton. Steve, would you help a homeless person? I have now and again... How, yeah. how do you help them? I just give them a fiver. Yep. Are you know, one of the reasons that people say we shouldn't give money to homeless people is that, that they may spend it on something naughty, like booze or drugs. Does that not worry you at all? No, I mean, we're not perfect, are we? We spend money on whatever we like, so what are they? Well, what's the difference? None of us are gods, are we? Drink out old and that's a drug and we well, take up stuff. But some people, some do you? Some people might say, um, but, you know, the, 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 the part of the reason that they are homeless, and this isn't me, I'm just putting this argument forward, part of the reason they are homeless is because they do fritter their money on, you know, drugs and things. Yeah, well, surely we should have homeless people in 2012 anyway. Disgusting. I mean, this day should be made to be come off the streets, cleaned up, and put in a house. When you get people coming from abroad with ten, pe- ten kids and the families, they get stuck in a mansion in London. They haven't even paid a penny in the system. So tell me what's there. It's a disgrace. Okay, well, there's, there's a couple of things there that, 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 that have caught my fancy. So they, you, they should be cleaned up off the streets. So what, what should be done with the homeless people, Steve? Well, no, you make them up to your our, our living standard. But how do, how do you do that? Well, you force them off the street. Take them off and you strip them down and you give them a good shower and you go and get some clothes, buy some clothes from them and make them... Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You force them off the streets, you strip them down and yeah. give them a good shower. Yeah, try and find them a job. Right. You know that a lot of homeless people living on the streets are mentally ill. You know that there's... I don't know, we should try and find out what the figures are because a lot of them are. Well, a lot of people in prison are mentally ill. There's a, there's a lot of mentally people on the streets now who go to work. Yeah, I know. I know that, 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 but, but I'm speaking specifically about the homeless people. The, the, just stripping, the, just forcing them off the streets and stripping them down and giving them a good shower is not necessarily no, what they but need. You know what I'm for me, it's not literally in that sense. It's the way I'm saying it. But right. at the end of the day, you've got to make people say, I'll care of the community. You don't know, nobody knows what the care of the community is, but right. how can you let people sleep on the streets? How can you? 
I don't, I don't, and to pick up on your other point very briefly, because we are running out of time slightly, I don't think that there are necessarily that many people that come over here and are moved straight into mansions. I don't think there are many people living in mansions. Well, there's a few. How many? I, I don't know the figure, but it doesn't matter about mansions. They still get a, they still get a roof over their head, and they even moan about it when they get it. I mean, what should we fund other people and foreign aid to other countries? Fifteen billion spent on foreign aid to China, Russia, India, Pakistan. They're loaded. Steve, thank you very much. Stephen Luton. Strong views there from Stephen, as always. What do you think, dear listener? Should we just round the homeless up, get them off the streets, strip them down, give them a shower and make them get a job? 08459 four double five five double five is the telephone number. Let's go to Debbie in Milton Keynes. Good morning, Debbie. Good morning, Ian. Bu- busy on the phones this morning, and that's what <laughs> I like. Debbie, what's your take on this homeless story? Um, well, I lived up Central Milton Keynes for quite a while, and um, there was a lady up there that lived in a car oh for mon- months and months and months. And um, so I used to walk the dog, and sort of I, the first couple of mornings I sort of see her, and I thought I thought it was awful. It was just full of carrier bags. Yeah. And um, I went home after walking the dog, and I made her a breakfast and a cup of coffee, and took it back down to her, and. Um, all she did was shout at me. Very oh, abusive. Dear. Very abusive. Um, told me to take it away. She was foreign of some sort, and um, I was I was quite hurt because obviously I wanted to try and help her a little bit, and I thought if if I did that, and then perhaps I could you know help her a little bit more. But um, no. Do you well, Debbie? Well done you for having a go because that's that's very kind of you. Um, and if you feel like bringing me some breakfast this morning, Debbie, I certainly, I certainly won't shout at you. Uh, do you s- suspect that maybe she was? We were saying to Steve, maybe she was. She had a mental illness of some kind. You, you... No, no, I think she was just very proud. Right. Okay. I yeah. think she was very proud. And you can understand um, that, can't you? I can. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know. I mean, I, I, we'd see her in the morning, and and it was where the um, local pub was, and she'd wait till it opened. She'd go in there and she'd get washed and cleaned. Mm. Um, and I just think she was a very proud person. You, you know, I don't know the circumstances of why she was there. You do, you do have to um, wonder what, what route her life took to end, mm. end, uh, end up living in a car. It's incredible. Yeah. Debbie, listen, thank you very much. And well done you for, for at least making an effort. And I'm sorry that it was, it was thrown back in your face. Would you ever help homeless person? 08459 555. Take that. How deep is your love? Simon Cow slagging off Gary Barlow in the papers. What a surprise. What? When the uh, X Factor's not doing that well in the ratings, Cowell is being rude about one of his judges on the X Factor. What a coincidence, isn't it? Hey, what a coincidence. Now, volunteers at a Hertfordshire charity are using their own money to keep it running after their funding was cut. The Crescent, which helps more than 300 people with HIV and AIDS, had their funding stopped by Hearts County Council, who switched support to another charity near Watford instead. Actor John Sessions has been supporting the cause. He told BBC Three Counties what he feared would happen if the Crescent did have to close. Well, the service users will, in some cases, in very bad, desperate cases, fall into the bad old ways. They are drug users, they will use dirty needles. If they are homosexuals, they will indulge in unsafe sex. If they're haemophiliacs, they will become progressively more unlucky. 
Well, these service users told BBC Three Counters why the Crescent is so important to its clients. When I was first diagnosed, I felt so isolated because I didn't know places like this existed until I actually went to the clinic and somebody pointed me in this direction. We meet people who are in the same boat as us, so we've got nothing to hide from each other. I mean, I feel more healthier now than I did before I started having my meds. I well, actually. That's the same for me. I, I feel much healthier now. And there are people that come here who have no-one else to tell and or can't for whatever reason. So this is the only place that they can be their self and talk about it, you know, to get away from their normal life. And there's a couple of people here said things to me that actually gave me the courage to say, do you know what? I can do it. And I did. What would happen if the Crescent were to close? What would you do? I can't even think about that. Honestly, I can't think about it. We've tried basically everything. We've we've written letters to the council. The council has just give them the funding back. Uh, you know, there's nothing else you can say. Just give the funding back. Well, the council said in the statement they were, quote, unlikely that we'll be able to find any more money for HIV services, but if there are things we can do to improve the way our current contracts are working, then we're happy to consider them, unquote. <clears throat> Yesterday, they met with Ian Murta, manager of the Crescent, to discuss the matter. What's the latest? Well, we'll hear from all sides in an hour. <laughs> It's 6.45, it's Tuesday the 18th of September. These are your headlines this morning on BBC Three Counties Radio. The number of homeless families temporarily living in B&Bs in Hertfordshire has risen by 250%. The General Medical Council has revealed that the number of complaints about doctors in the UK has reached a record high. Lewis Hamilton has played down suggestions he may be about to leave McLaren by stating he is still 100% focused on claiming his second Formula One title with the British team. The weather across beds, hearts and bucks. Cloudy with sunny spells and the chance of one or two light showers. Top temperature today is 17 degrees. Coming up, we'll hear hear the latest from France as lawyers for Prince William and his wife go to court to limit those topless photos being published. BBC Three Counties Radio. There we go, that wasn't meant to be that, that was meant to be this. Here on BBC Three Counties Radio, we've been following the story of a strip club that's supposedly opening in uh, Ampdill, and some of the team uh, have been following this story a little bit closer than others. Back in July, residents in the town reacted angrily after plans to convert a former cafe into a lap dancing club were given the thumbs up. Well, over the last few weeks, residents have noticed more activity at the site, and a petition from locals opposing the opening of the club has gathered over 1,500 signatures. Well, Justin Dealey, um, when we asked who wanted to cover this story today, Justin Dealey thrust his hand up in the air and said, please, sir, meet sir. <laughs> Justin, you're in Amptill this morning. What's going on? Uh, yes, I'm going to be there very, very soon. We're going to be in the Waitrose car park. We're going live at about 10 to 8 this morning. So if anybody's got an opinion about this, uh, come and see us. As you mentioned, uh, lots of opposition to this in Amstel. It's a, a lovely Georgian town, lots of history there. There were problems there earlier in the year, Ian, when there was a tattoo studio there, and some people said, no, this is just wrong for Amstel. Uh, a tattoo studio is not right. So you can imagine the passion uh, when a, a lap dancing club was suggested. So people not happy about this. We know that Central Bedfordshire Council have signed off this sexual entertainment licence. Oh uh, we believe it's going to be opening next month. Um, John Shaler, who who owns this particular cafe, now come lap dancing club, has been advertising for people. So people in Amsterdam are clearly not happy whatsoever. 
surely, Justin, the, 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 coming at this from the other side, it's got to draw business into Amptill. That, that's got to be a good thing, hasn't it? Well, the person who's got this licence, Lord John Shaler, uh, he runs a lap dancing club on the A5. Sorry, did you say Lord John Shaler? Yes, that's what he calls himself, Lord John Shaler. Okay. Uh, he's quite a character. Um, he's got uh, a premises on the A5, a lap dancing club there, a very successful business. So what he's saying is, look, I'm a businessman. I'm here to make money. Mm. And I've got a building here which is not being used for whatever reason the cafe hasn't worked so so what about this uh, i've i've done this before i've made lots of money i'm going to try again now what he describes himself as in and i think you'll appreciate this he describes himself as walt disney uh, the reason being is because he wants to bring a bit of magic to yeah. people in Amptill. you don't see that kind of stuff over in disneyland trust me <laughs> i've looked <laughs> now uh, with the, the, this lord john shaler if mm. we can be completely honest we have tried to get him i believe before i came here there have been efforts to get him on bbc three counties that i think have failed i am launching uh, justin i need your help with this i'm launching today a concerted effort to get lord john shaler to come on my breakfast show uh, and uh, face the criticism of the locals so could can i start justin with you just trying to track him down today yes and we're going to give him a week we're going to get in touch, and if we can't find him in a week, we're going to put this out to the public to try and track him down for us, OK? I, th- I think that's fair enough. I mean, w- w- when it comes to Lord John Shaler, he is, uh, he's an expert of PR. He knows how to get his stories out there. Some people in Amstel said to me last time I was up there, it's a joke. He is just winding people up. Well, it's not a joke, because that licence, of course, has been granted mm. from Central Bedfordshire Council. So we know he's got the licence. We believe he's going to be opening next month. But, as you say, we would love to talk to him to find out more. Just tell us where you're going to be, Justin and what time? I'm going to be in the Waitrose car park in the centre of Amptill. We're going to be there from about 7.30 this morning and we're going to be going live on The Breakfast Show at 10 to 8. So come and see us if you've got a view. Justin, thank you very much. Just don't use the toilet, Justin, as, uh, because Justin famously got locked in a toilet on his holiday last week. We'll hear more about that later on. Uh, but do go down there and say hello. Uh, uh, and if you're for or against this lap dancing club, go and have a word with Justin. And Lord John Shaler, I want you on my radio show and we're going to find you. Talking about homelessness, it's Pat in Hutton Regis. Good morning, Pat. Good morning, Ian. What's your take on this? Well, if you earn something like, if you were lucky to earn £500 a year four years ago, and... £500 uh, you earn, a year? Yeah, sorry, £500 a week four, right, years, yes, four yes. years ago, and your payout was £400 a week expenses a week. Nowadays, if you come into this, you know, 2012... You, your outgoings were probably 600 now, and mm. you're still on £500 a week or less. And that's only going to make more people homeless on the streets, and our MPs just don't get it. They really don't. I mean, in Steve's real world, you know, you wash someone and throw them into a job. That's never going to happen. That's just fairy tale. There's no jobs out there for these people anyway. So it's a, we're really in a mess of a country, and I wish these MPs would take that on board. I think it's, that's interesting what you say, Pat. And when we, I don't know if you heard, we had uh, Dashie, one of the production team, in earlier on, and she said yeah. that her dad ran a successful business, and he got ill, and very quickly they were in trouble. And we are all very, very close to being homeless. All it takes is to, to lose a job, uh, get a little bit behind with the bills, and suddenly... I don't have a credit card anymore, Pat, because years and years no. ago... Uh, I got in a bit of trouble with credit cards, and I just mm. I just got rid of them because I, I thought this isn't helping me at all. And I only buy stuff now if I can afford it. Never buy it on credit. Uh, but but, but we're all that close to being homeless. It just takes a few things to go wrong. It's the most frightening thing to know that you're going to lose everything to your family, and there's really no help out there. It doesn't matter about uh, going up to uh, the CAB to get help, etc. Your life is falling apart. And these MPs have got to realise when your life falls apart, you're in desperate situations, and desperate situations 
may turn you to. Hello? Yeah, sorry, go on, Steve. May, t- may, t- may turn you the wrong way, if you like, to, to su- make your family survive. And mm. we're in trouble. This could be millions. We're not talking about hundreds of thousands. You could be talking millions just ready to turn over on the edge. Mm. Would you ever help a homeless person, Steve, if you saw them? Have you ever done? Sorry? Have you ever helped a homeless person? Would you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had a Christmas holiday, fortunately for me, and um, I... I give money to a homeless person that was actually wading about in a bin on the beach. And when I approached him, he sort of near enough threatened me. And, what? And I, I just said, no, no, go and get yourself a breakfast, except. And um, he was a bit failed towards me, and he didn't have any people skills. That's all it was. And well, it's a shame. Pat, listen, thank you very much for that. It's interesting, isn't it? We are all so close... To being homeless, it just takes a few things to not work out, a few payments to be a bit late, and we're in trouble. Would you help a homeless person? 08459 455 555. David Bowie, it's Space Oddity. I think the only hit record to feature a stylophone. I think. I could be wrong on that. Now, a court in Paris will decide this morning whether to ban further publication of photos. There it is. Thank you. Uh, we'll decide this morning whether to ban further publication of photos of the Duchess of Cambridge topless, which have appeared in a French magazine. Yesterday, lawyers for Prince William and his wife Kate asked for an injunction. The three magistrates presiding over the civil case are expected to announce whether an injunction will be granted at 11 o'clock this morning. Our Europe reporter, Duncan Crawford, is in Paris and was at the court yesterday. Duncan, what was said in court yesterday? Well, their lawyers were in court to try and get a ban and Uh, these photos from being republished or sold. Their lawyer uh, spoke to these magistrates saying that he wanted French magazine closer to hand over the digital originals of the pictures or face a daily fine of €10,000. He said the couple didn't know they were being photographed, that they could only be taken with a long-distance lens, these pictures, and that the Duke and Duchess weren't visible to people outside the chateau grounds. After that, Closer, Closer Magazine's lawyer spoke disagreeing with that, saying that the couple were visible from a nearby road, saying that topless photographs are no longer considered shocking to society and that the couple's reaction had created extra interest in the pictures. So uh, those two lawyers will be back in that courtroom uh, a little later on this morning to hear that judgment at midday local time, 11 o'clock UK time. Who's actually published the pictures already because one editor has been suspended hasn't he yeah you're right uh, they were published in france to begin with then they were published in ireland by the irish daily star yesterday they were published in italy as well by the sister publication of closer magazine but uh, the irish daily star editor michael o'kane has been uh, suspended from his role while an internal investigation is carried out into why these photos were published what editorial decisions were made in the build-up to that already uh, the co-owner of that paper richard desmond who also owns the express also owns channel five has said he wasn't aware that the photos were going to be published in that paper that he disagreed with it and also is looking at ways to close down the paper now we understand there is going to be a board meeting at that paper a little later on where that is a possibility that could happen uh, Duncan, thank you very much. That's Duncan Crawford, our reporter in Paris, and this story that keeps rumbling on 
about um, the pictures of Kate's, you know, boobs. It, I don't know if you can say that about the future queen, actually. I should have I should have checked with the BBC guidelines. I will check a little bit later on. Uh, it, it seems odd, doesn't it? It keeps going on. And, and, and Richard Desmond is showing a, a bit of backbone and pulling out of the, the Daily Star in Ireland and potentially closing that newspaper down. Wow, that first hour flew past, didn't it? Where have you been if you've just tuned in, for goodness sakes? There are another two hours to go. Plenty of stuff. We'll be talking about dodgy doctors and your complaints after the latest news and sport with Catherine Boyle. Thank you, Catherine. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. It's three minutes past seven, Tuesday the 18th of September. Lots to cram in in the next two hours. More homeless families are being temporarily placed in bed and breakfast in Hertfordshire than ever before. Have you ever helped a homeless person? 08459 455 555. Complaints about doctors are on the rise. Ever complained? Got any dodgy doctor stories? And there are more than 150 drivers over the age of 100 in this area. Should older people be allowed to drive as long as they like? Or should we cap the age limit? You can text 81333, starting your text 3CR. You can email 3cr at bbc.co.uk or you can give me a call 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, more homeless families are being temporarily placed in bed and breakfast in Hertfordshire. The National Housing Federation say that this figure has increased by over 250% in hearts in the last year. Earlier we heard from Dashi. She works on the production team for this show and she told me about the time her and her family became homeless. I was just going on for 12. My dad had been ill for a number of years and he got a lot worse and his business ended up folding up. He'd got sicker and sicker. He yeah. couldn't... Um, he couldn't really cope with it. That folded. My mum became his full-time carer. Yeah. And, you know, they couldn't keep up, you know, to put it bluntly, they couldn't keep up with their mortgage repayments. So the, our house was repossessed and we found ourselves homeless and having to be put into a and b um, first mm. of all, before we were placed in temporary accommodation. So how many permanent. of you were there? How many in your family? Four of us. There was my mum, my dad, myself and my younger sister. It all happened quite quickly, actually. I think... I came home from school one day, actually, and everything was packed up. Wow, All really? our stuff was gone, yep. What do you remember of, of being in a and b I remember it being very brown. Everything, everything in the hotel was brown and all, all dark, dark sort of maroon. And I remember when we moved in, it was, it was a room and it was smaller than the stu- studio and it had one tiny double bed, mm. two single beds cramped in, a small chest of drawers and a little TV on top, and wow. then there was a bathroom off the side of it. For all four of you? For all four of us. And there was no, there was literally no space for us to walk between the beds. It was pretty much you opened the door and there was um, four, you know, three mattresses. Wow. The studio, I should say, is about 12 foot by, I don't know, 15 it, it was foot, much like smaller. It was probably about a good half the size of this to three quarters. Wow. Uh, well, Claire Astbury is the East England, East of England, sorry, lead manager for the National Housing Federation. Good morning, Claire. Good morning. Claire, you heard uh, Dashi's story there. How common is that? Well, I think Dashi's ex- example really shows how, you know, homelessness isn't something that happens to other people. Uh, it, you know, it's not difficult. It just takes an illness, 
a relationship breakdown and, and with more and more families in private rented accommodation where their tenancy can just be ended um, you know through no fault of their own then you know it, it can become very easy if you just you know lose your job or whatever um, and you know it is a real concern at the moment because of the economic circumstances mm. that we're in I think that's the thing that people aren't aware of. It, it, it's just a few bad decisions and a few bad bits of luck and it could be you, couldn't it? Absolutely. Uh, that's very much what we're seeing. And, you know, local authorities at the moment are, you know, beginning to struggle to cope because, you know, there are lots of families who are becoming homeless. And to be fair, they only get temporary accommodation if they are, you know, in priority need and unintentionally homeless. Mm. We're not talking about people who, you know, you know, deliberately put themselves in this position. Um, and... You know, that's why we're seeing bed and breakfast numbers going up and up. Well, let's talk about the numbers. How, accommodation. how many families are we talking about in Hertfordshire who are temporarily placed in uh, B&Bs? Um, we saw, I mean, it's from a low base, so we saw from year-on-year year rise from 14 households last year to 50 households this year in the first quarter of this year. Um, but, you know, we're saying that you know, any household, like I think Dashi would say, any household going into bed and breakfast is too many. Uh, you know, children coming home from school want a place to sit down and do their homework where they can have friends, that, you know, that it's a proper family life. And... Good quality temporary accommodation uh, is a really good solution to that. And what the National Housing Federation is calling for at the moment is for the government to be clear about how that's going to continue to be funded. At the moment, uh, you know, there is uh, funding arrangements to cover the higher cost of temporary accommodation, but we haven't had any clarity from the government about what will happen next year when the benefits cap comes in and the changes to benefits happen. If people are getting housing benefits to cover those costs, they might not be able to even afford their temporary accommodation. And we're very concerned what that might mean for vulnerable families at this point. Well, some people might say that the the, the, the universal cap on benefits is still quite generous because £500 a week in benefits could be considered as being generous, couldn't it? Oh, absolutely. And um, what, what you need to recognise with some of the temporary accommodation that's being provided is it's being bought at market value. So it's being paid for um, pretty much almost at market price and then let on. So you need to be recognised. And the government does recognise that that is more expensive in terms of providing accommodation. At the bottom of this is that we don't have enough homes, you know, that we have a massive housing shortage in this country, a massive housing crisis. And what we need to see is more house building, which will stimulate the economy, provide the homes that we need and deliver more affordable homes well uh, listen it sounds like a sensible plan thank you very much uh, for that that's claire asprey who is the east of england lead manager for the national housing federation Uh, i I would love to hear from you if you have been in this situation or been very close to this situation oh wait four five nine four double five five double five one of the things i found doing this show in particular doing phone-ins in general, but this show in particular, is uh, there's an amazing amount of honesty when you call in, and it is appreciated. So if you've been close to being homeless, or you have been homeless, and you've managed to, to get yourself back on track, could you give me a call? 08459 455 555. I think what we're learning this morning is that homelessness isn't something that happens to other people. It could happen to you. Our reporter, Justin Dealey, went to meet a homeless man in, Le- in Luton, and he said that people just don't want to help. So I'm here with Adam. Adam, how long have you been homeless for now? A couple of months. It was not long. I'm coping very well. I mean, I'm fine. There's not a lot to do. Are you saying you're fine because you're a proud man? What about about the security aspects of sleeping rough every night here? 
there isn't anything. You, you just go to sleep. You're just too tired. There isn't anything to do around here. And how do you eat then? If you haven't got any money, how do you eat? I just get donations sometimes. It's they're a bit tight-fisted at the moment with their money. They're not very nice. It's, I've just had a few hiccups with people. They just tend to just walk by when they should be helping. Well, there's nothing I can do. So tell us what you've had to eat this week, then, for argument's sake. Um, I can't remember. It's, this week's gone by really fast. Just eating sandwiches and hamburgers, nothing. And when do you hope to be back in, let's say, normal accommodation, back into a house or a flat? Uh, what's the situation there? Um, I had a meeting in Guildford in the day centre about accommodation. They seem very happy. I, I just got to take it from there. I don't know how long it's going to take. So if that's in Surrey, how come you've ended up here in Luton? Well, I just came here. I was told to come here. I was given the bus fare, so I came here. I mean, obviously now it's summertime, it's, it's quite mild, but we are going to be coming into the winter. That must really put the fear into you that you could be sleeping homeless throughout those bitterly cold months. I haven't thought about it. I was Justin Dealey who uh, speaking uh, earlier in the year to a homeless man in Luton. And I've been hearing your views this morning. I got halfway through this thing and I thought, oh, I don't want the other one. And there was a guy on the pavement. Yeah. So I jumped out of my van and I said, would you like this? And what was the first thing this guy did? Take half a burger out and gave to his dog. He should have homeless people in 2012. Anyway, it's disgusting. I mean, these days should be made to be come off the streets, cleaned up and put in a house. There was a lady up there that lived in a car. I went home after walking the dog and I made her a breakfast and a cup of coffee and took it back down to her. All she did was shout at me. Very abusive. Very abusive. Well, you can give me a call if you've ever helped a homeless person, or maybe you consider it, 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 that it isn't appropriate to give them money or buy them food because they should be doing something for themselves. Maybe you're a, a part of the uh, you know, way of thinking that's pull your socks up, deal with it. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. Madeline is in Sandy. Good morning, Madeline. Hello there. What, what, what's your take on this? Well, I was just sort of thinking about what you were saying and listening to all the people, and yes, I mean it does make me feel quite guilty because. Because I have a house that really is too large for me and I rattle around with it in it on my own. And I'm sort of thinking, well, could I actually offer somebody a home? Well, yes, I suppose I could. But then we live in a funny old world and you think to yourself, well, am I going to let myself in for a whole lot of problems? Mm. Um, I don't think it's that people wouldn't. I think that they're probably afraid to because they don't quite know what's going to come next. And, yes, I mean, I do look at these people on the streets and I think, well, as you said earlier, you know, how how did you actually get to this stage? Mm. You know, what actually has happened in your life to bring you to this point? And we have to be very mindful of the fact that there, for the grace of God, go I, because it can happen to any of us at any time. And, yes, I think most people, human beings, are very, very generous, really. And most people, in times of adversity, like to help people, and they do. But 
they don't really want to get themselves into a whole load of trouble at the same time. And I would suggest, Madeline, that you that you um, inviting someone into your house could possibly be a dangerous situation. So I, I would suggest that, that that probably isn't the best way to go. Well, no. But would you ever do you ever buy them sandwiches or burgers or give them any money or anything? Oh, I would do. I would do because I think you're right. I mean, I think that most people, most of these people, have mental health is- health issues. Um, and I think that's all we can do, really, is just sort of help them as and when we can. Madeline, thank you very much. Madeline and Sandy, what's your take on that? 08459 455 555. You heard from Justin Dealey as well. Uh, this morning, he's at the Waitrose Car Park in Ampt Hill talking about the proposed lap dancing sex entertainment venue that um, is going to open at some point, we think. So if you've got views on that, do pop down to the car park in Waitrose, say hello to him, have a word, and let him know for or against. And if the conversation conversation runs a bit dry. Uh, ask him about getting locked in a toilet on his holiday. He'll be more than happy to tell you. <laughs> it's 7.15. It's Tuesday the 18th of September. These are your headlines this morning on BBC Three Counties Radio. The number of homeless families temporarily placed in bed and breakfast accommodation in Hertfordshire increased by over 250% in the last year. The General Medical Council says the number of complaints about doctors has risen by nearly a quarter over the past year to a record high of nearly 8,800. In sport, England's cricketers will announce their squad for the Test Series in India at 11 o'clock this morning. We'll have a full weather bulletin shortly with Steve Weston. And coming up, what will the future Milton Keynes look like? A public consultation is underway to discuss future developments in central Milton Keynes. We'll find out more before 7.30am. BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, here's a thing. Tom in Leavesden got in contact. He has something he wants to bring to our attention. He's on the line. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Tom, what is, what is it you want to, to uh, tell us about? Uh, it was just about um, your um, about the police force in our own um, Hertfordshire. Um, I've um, I have basically been, I've been having a problem. I've been reporting a problem on a roundabout. Yes. Where a number of cars are, um, regularly jump through the red light and put other people's lives at risk. Um, now I've spoken to several police officers in and around the Watford area about this roundabout. Um, I've been to Watford Police Station on, on a number of occasions about this roundabout, and I've even phoned the Police Complaints Commission about this roundabout, and still nothing seems to happen about so it. So how many how many times have you seen people jumping through the red lights? Oh, seven, particularly at rush hour. You know, like, um, I've, I've been sat in the roundabout um, at the lights. My lights have gone green. I've gone to go, and they're still coming through, um, coming off the motorway, um, just belting through. Um, just the other week, I almost got... I'd say I almost got killed. I was sat at the, at the lights. The car in front of me, um, when the lights went green, it, he stalled his engine and he had to restart it. So he restarted his engine. And just as he went to go, this lorry, an articulated lorry, came belting straight through the lights. Mm. And had he have gone uh, normally, the lorry would have taken him out and killed him. Wow. So tell us exactly where this is, Tom, so that people can, can picture this in their minds. It's the, it's the big roundabout at Junction 5 of the M1. It's where the M1 and the A41 meet, and then there's another road that goes down towards Watford. OK. And, and so you've spoken to... How many times have you been in touch with the police? I've been in touch with the police on this... I've been into the police station probably about three times over the last year. I've spoken to several police officers in and around the Watford area. 
Um, there's a friend of mine, he's a police, he's not a police officer, he's one of the police special constables. Yes. Um, what he's telling me is the problem with the roundabout in the, is that it falls in on the board of two jurisdictions. Ah, I see, it's so a wasteland. The same ownership for this roundabout. What would you like to see happen, Tom? Well, I'd like to see um, maybe cameras going on on the red light, on the lights. So if somebody does go through a red light, it snaps on the number plate and they get a fine and three points on the licence. And that will soon put an end to the, the people jumping through the red lights and that. Tom, OK, well, listen, keep listening. Uh, dear listener, you heard Tom there, Tom and Leveson, talking about the Junction 5 roundabout of the M1, where the A41 meets the M1. First off, have you seen what Tom's seen? People jumping through the, the red lights... He says it happens quite regularly. Have you spotted it at all? Let us know. You can get in touch via email, 3cr at bbc.co.uk, or you can give us a call, 08459 455 555. Let us know what you've seen so we can investigate and find out what's going on, and maybe one morning we'll, uh, we'll send Justin over there or someone to have a little look and uh, see if we can follow this up at all. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. <laughs> Now, here's some exciting news, dear listener. You can join Jonathan Vernon-Smith every weekday from 9 o'clock on BBC Three Counties Radio discussing the issues issues that matter to you. Uh, From 10am, he'll always have an interesting, surprising, and sometimes a naughty guest as well. He had a a nudie person in the other day, didn't he? A nudie person. I mean, they had their clothes on. I I, I don't think Jonathan's ever seen a naked person in his life. He'd be too too upset by the image. Uh, And the consumer hour. 11 o'clock is always worth a, a listen. And my, my weekends, my Sundays are spent in my tiny little office at home. Um, not really doing a lot, actually. Uh, and listening to the consumer hours from the whole week. Wonderful, wonderful fun. Now, later on we'll be looking at this properly, but we, I have been throwing out the subject this morning that possibly there are too many old drivers. Uh, there are over... There's something like... A, how many drivers? 115 drivers over the age of 100 in this area, in the in the country, I've been told. Okay, somewhere. <laughs> Welcome to the BBC. Uh, and I kind of been thinking about this. We talked about this briefly in the office this morning, and I, I do think that at a certain age, you should stop driving. That I, I think at the age of seventy, you have to start taking your driving test every three years. Uh, and I kind of think that at sixty-five. You should maybe take a driving test every year. At the age of 70, you should stop driving. Because let's be honest, everyone says, oh, they're very safe drivers. Well, they drive very slowly. There's a difference between driving slowly and being safe. David is in Marsh Farm. David, what's your take on this? Well, my father's 92. He's still driving. He lives a very independent life. No troubles at all. He, sh- he shouldn't be allowed to drive, David. If, if I were the, well, the, the I president... Think, uh, Ian, I think you're talking a load of nonsense. Why? Be- because he's a perfectly safe driver. Oh. He's got full no claims. He hasn't had any accidents. He's never in. He's, he drives to Devon every year. Oh, my goodness. But no, I, bet, I bet he does 30 miles an hour in the middle lane of the motorway. I don't think so. He drives perfectly well. <laughs> How old are you, then, David? 66. Still working. Right, well, you should take a driving test every year until you're 70, and then you should stop. I think you're talking an absolute load of nonsense. In that case, I'm going to say goodbye. Goodbye. David says goodbye. Thank you very much. Oh, wait, 459 455 555. What do you think? Should older people... Are they, are they safer drivers? We heard from David there, who's 66, and his dad is 92. 
92 years old and he's still driving. I'm not sure. Give us a call. 08459 455 555. Now, what will Milton Keynes look like in the future? Will the grid system survive? Will the roundabouts disappear? A public consultation is underway to make sure that future developments in central Milton Keynes stay in line with what local people want. Jessica Cooper's been asking people what they want Milton Keynes to look like in the future. Well, I think that they should be uh, definitely maintaining what we've already got. So things like the point, I think they should keep. They should do something very interesting with the point and innovative and bring something new to Milton Keynes rather than just think of ways just to bring in more big shops that we already have. Um, in terms of the, the grid road as well, uh, going through the middle of the centre, I think that should definitely stay, and the market traders should be allowed to stay uh, where they are. So if you and I were stood here in 20 years' time and we looked over to the shopping centre and the point where it is at the moment, what would yeah. you quite like to see here? I suppose m- m- a place more for sort of ind- independent shops and small businesses to be able to foster, I think. And, and obviously we haven't got a high street, but somewhere where you can have just a bit of personality and something a bit different just from, as I keep coming back, to just big shops everywhere. Free parking would be nice to come back because obviously there isn't any anymore. Um, Very, very little, but I doubt that will do. I think I'd like it to remain the same. It doesn't want to be too overdeveloped. Well, Neil Sainsbury is the Head of Urban Design and Landscape Architecture at Milton Keynes Council. Neil, what's being suggested? Um, well, first of all, we, <clears throat> what we're wanting to do is, uh, is create a, a flexible strategy uh, rather than a blueprint to accommodate changing circumstances and respond to market conditions, whilst at the same time, as some of your um, viewers and, and listeners have just said, we want to uh, respect certain rules about protecting some of the key public realm infrastructure within central Milton Keynes, such as the, the, the geometry of the grid and the tree-lined boulevards and the underpasses. And we also want to provide some strategic and high-level guiding principles relating to the growth. What what does that mean? Um, What we want to do is we want to ensure that when new development comes forward, that developers know how how the building should face the street, how tall buildings should be, um, how they should deal with landscaping, how we should deal with new public spaces, and where where, where most of the land uses um, should go, where the predominant land uses should go. Neil, can I ask you... I heard a rumour. Are the roundabouts going in Milton Keynes? Well, this study is only focused on central Milton Keynes, and there's obviously roundabouts around the edges of central Milton Keynes, and certainly none of the roundabouts are proposed to be going at all, nothing whatsoever. Why update it now? Um, Well, we're updating it now because, first of all, Central Milton Keynes is the main location in the city for retail, office and leisure development. And the council's core strategy supports this by anticipating significant further growth over the next 15 years. And the council, therefore, have a corporate responsibility to ensure an appropriate planning framework is in place to guide and promote this growth. And secondly, a development framework, in fact, does exist for Central Milton Keynes, but this is 10 years old, and up-to-date planning and design guidance based on lessons learned from the previous framework as well as reviewing previous policies believed necessary to, to ensure the appropriate um, development of central Milton Keynes. So we've had the hub and we've had the vision built. Some people have had um, some, a lot of negative reaction to that, so we want to learn from the lessons from those developments in terms of um, the future growth. Of well, central this is Milton interesting because, because plans for a Primark and the uh, possible plans to knock down the point have divided opinion. A lot of people very upset by those projects. How much will you listen to the public? 
We'll be listening to the public a lot. Uh, those planning applications, um, one of them's in already, will will run their due process, will, will run their due course. But certainly during this consultation, we will be um, taking on board comments from residents um, and and citizens of Milton Keynes about the value of certain buildings and about the value of um, of certain um, pieces of infrastructure, and and that will help inform the final product of the development framework. Neil, thank you very much for your time. Neil Sainsbury, that is the head of urban design and landscape architecture at Milton Keynes Council. Well, you can have your say. What do you think should be the, the future for Milton Keynes? 08459 455 555. Give me a call and share your ideas with how Milton Keynes should change over the next 10 or 15 years. On the subject of older drivers, Faulkner's Totty, what a classy name, has uh, tweeted, I think old people are dangerous drivers and should be made to pay the same huge insurance premiums that 17-year-olds have to pay. Well, what do you think? 08459 455 555. Let's get the latest news and sport now with Catherine Boyle. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. <laughs> oh dear. I do sometimes wish we could record uh, the bits that are said off air uh, and then get those tapes, gather them together and then burn them so no one can ever listen to them because it's very, very naughty. Good morning, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. Coming up, predictive policing. It's all gone a bit minority report, apparently. Uh, We'll be talking lap dancing, but first of all, older drivers. Now, I have suggested... New statistics are out that there are uh, lots of drivers over the age of 100, something like 150. And it got me thinking, are older drivers really that safe? I think... And this is just my personal view. I'm not speaking for the BBC here at all. This is just me speaking my thoughts. And I've thought this for a while. That from the age of 65... Some faculties, it could be argued, perhaps dull ever so slightly. Listen, I'm 39 and my my memory is awful. So from the age of 65, wouldn't it be appropriate for drivers to take an annual driving test? Not the full thing. Just they drive an examiner around and the examiner goes, "Okay, yeah, you're good enough, fine. And then from the age of 70, they should be forced to stop driving. 08459 455 555. I believe some of you are agreeing with me. Some of you are uh, quite furious. Ted in Caddington, do you agree with me? I do not. Oh. Why is that, sir? Well, I'm 80. Oh, dear. And I'll I'll tell you something. I don't know your age, but I'll I'll have a £100 bet with you that I'm a better driver than you are. I beg your pardon, sir. Being being a member of BBC staff, I'm not allowed to indulge in uh, financial bets uh, (laughs) like that. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yes. Anyway, um, I'll I'll go on to say that I I just don't agree with you. Um, I, I, I mean, I drove car transports 30 years and that takes a bit of doing. Of course and I, it does. I, I couldn't do that. Now. Yep. I'm, I'm going out in a minute, and um, I'm, you know, I'm 80. I'm good for 80, I suppose. Um, there is one thing about it. I yep. think some people, yes, I fully agree with you, but yep. how you work, how you pick these certain people out of the old age, I'm not too sure. I mean, I, I know someone um, uh, that should never be driving, but they do. <laughs> <laughs> really? So, what, what's what's uh, you are right. What's wrong with their driving? Is it a bit shaky because they're so old? Very shaky. Yeah. And, um, well, yeah, very shaky. You see my point then, Ted, don't you? They're... Yeah, no, hang on. No, so you're, you're agreeing with me. You're saying that we should stop driving at 70. It's better to be safe than sorry, isn't it? And you're, you're virtually agreeing with me, Ted. No, I'm not. No, no, no. I mean, I mean you're, you're trying to say I should have stopped driving 10 years ago. What's your eyesight like? Very good. What's that number plate say over there? 
quiet. There we go. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, uh, uh, when was the last time you had a crash? Um, nine years ago, and it wasn't a crash. It was uh, no. uh, <laughs> uh, uh, someone just touched, touched me wing. I, I would love someone to touch my wing, but it does it happens so rarely these days. <laughs> well, Ted, listen, uh, have, have a word with my team. We may see if we can sort out a little drive-off between me and you. Because <laughs> I, 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 won't, I won't do the financial bet, because I don't want to take money from an 80-year-old man. But oh, I reckon, Colin. I reckon, I'm, of course I'm a better driver than you. Sorry? Of course I'm a better driver than you, Ted. I'm half your age. <laughs> Go, I'll, I'll put you back to, to the production team and we'll... We'll okay. see if we can sort something out, Ted. There we go. Ted is 80. He's challenged me to a, a race. Not a race. No, hang on. A drive-off. <laughs> we'll see. I'm sure we can sort something uh, like that out. Uh, let's go to Indy in Bedford. Morning, Indy. Morning, Ian. How you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you very much. What's, what's your take on this? Older drivers. Uh, my, my, my dad is actually uh, 73, Ooh. and what we decided to do was buy him an automatic. Right. Now, why did you do that? Right, simply because we thought, okay, 73, you know, with all the gears and all that, but since, he, since we, he's had an automatic for the last five, six years now, and to be honest, I, we, I've got absolutely no problem with him driving locally. Yeah, just for our concerns, our family concerns, yeah. we don't like him driving on the motorway. There you go. But, um, yeah. Why don't but you I've like got... him driving on the motorway? Because he's old. Uh, yeah, he's, well, I mean, if he's, obviously... If he's too... You're all arguing my point, but you don't realise it. If he's too old to drive a manual and drive on the motorway, he shouldn't be allowed to drive. No, it was because of our concerns that we decided, OK, automatic, it's like, it's like almost like a dodging car. You put it in drive, and off you go. You don't have to worry about gears yeah. and anything. But don't get me wrong, I have sat with him, I sit with him very regular, just to make sure he's, he's OK. Yeah. Recent, and he, I think every two years, he has to uh, DVLA send him a new uh, uh, request for a new licence. Yeah. He has to fill in a medical and all that. And to be honest, the doctor needs to sign it. If it and if he's not well, he ain't going to get a license. Okay. So, you know, I would say, yeah, I've had really bad experience. I've had a, an old couple driving on the opposite side of the road uh, roundabout. And so it, I can understand where you're How coming you from. You had an old couple driving the wrong way round a roundabout? I, I did. And I'll tell you, uh, I know what I've done. Oh. I, rang the, I rang the police up straight away and said, this is the number plate. This is the car out. This is the way they're heading. Could you just have a look at the, this couple? But, you know, I wouldn't say that, that goes for all the... Listen, old, India, uh, I've got to move on because you've got a lot to get on. But thank you very much for telling us about your, your dad. And I'm sure he sounds like a top bloke. But you've just argued my case for me. You saw an elderly couple driving the wrong way around a roundabout. Hey, listen, uh, this rule applies to me. When I get to 70, I'll stop driving, if that's the law. You get a bus pass. You can travel for free. 08459-455-555. Well, as I said, at the moment, there are more than 150 drivers over the age of 100 with a driving licence. But should older people be allowed to drive as long as they like? Justin Dealey has been finding out what age limit you in the three counties would like to impose. Now, Carl, you've been a lorry driver for 35 years, and you think that once you get to 70, that's it, you shouldn't be allowed to drive anymore. Tell us why. Uh, well, for the simple reason, I don't think you're... Uh quick enough reflexes, things like that, you know. I shouldn't be allowed to drive after about 70. I mean, you're driving every single day, so yeah. have you seen problems with older drivers then? Yeah, drivers, older drivers, you see them on the motorways, pulling out when they shouldn't be pulling out, too slow on the motorways, things like that, just causes accidents. 
How would you feel, though, if you get to 70, you've had years of driving experience, and somebody said to you, sorry, Carl, you can't drive anymore, <laughs> even though you're fit to drive, in your opinion? Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, but at the end of the day, if you're causing problems... You shouldn't be there, should you, really? And the idea, I mean, there's only one person we're talking about here, but somebody is 106 years old who's got a, a driving licence in this country. When you first heard that, did that kind of fill you with dread? Oh, yeah, shock. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. I always thought they took them off them after a, a certain age anyway. Well, at 70 years old, you retested yeah. every three years. That gives you some sort of safety, I suppose. But you're yeah. saying it's just too dangerous now. The yeah. roads have changed. You know, yeah. we, we've got to start something which would in your opinion, protects other people. Yeah, most definitely. Now, Sam, you're being slightly more impartial than your colleagues here. You're saying that everyone's different. They can't be a standard age of 70 or 80 because everyone's driving and everyone mentally is different at that age. Yeah, yeah. No, I just, I, I just think that there should come a time when everybody should be retested because everybody's capable of different things at different ages. Mm. Um, and I, I don't think it would be fair to say, right, once you're 75, you can't drive anymore. I mean, I've got some elderly relatives, 85, 90, and they drive okay, but I've also can think of one in particular that's only 65 that perhaps shouldn't be driving, you know? So you can't just cut off... You can't, you can't just give an age, can you, really, that you can cut off? It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be fair, I don't think, no. no. Mixed opinions there. You can have your say by texting 81333, starting your text 3CR, or give us, give us a call 08459 Moving on, a pilot for predictive policing has just begun. It's to help police predict where crime may take place so they can try and prevent it. Well, it's starting today in Birmingham, and we can speak to one of the people who came up with this idea. It's former Met Police officer from High Wycombe, Stephen Colgan. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. You were part of the, the team that came up with this idea. How does predictive policing work? Well, to be fair, I wasn't one of the people who came up with the idea, but it's certainly something we looked at and tried right. in London. Um, but but the basic the way it works is that you, you try and establish um, the factors and features of a particular crime. Um, so that what, what happens then is you can actually say that if you spot those factors or features emerging somewhere, you can say that it's likely that the crime will happen in this area. So you can put things in place as a sort of preventative um, system, you know, so that, so that basically you can try and stop the crime from happening before it happens. And how specific is it? How, how wide is the area that you spot? Is it a, a street? Is it a, an estate? How does it work? Um, usually, usually it is fairly, it's a fairly small area, yeah. It can, I mean, it can cover an entire estate if you've got a particular sort of, um, if there's features about the area geographically that actually lend itself to that particular kind of crime emerging. Um, it, it's a very, very difficult thing to do, but I mean, mm. I mean, I left the police two or three years ago, and and they had just started to work out really very good analytical algorithms then that were actually starting to find this stuff much, much better, and I'm sure it's much better now than it was then. So how would it work? You you, you find there's a street where you suspect that crime will be taking place. What do you do then? Just I- increase police presence, go and, and knock on doors and warn people. What what well, would the procedure yeah, be? I mean, police presence is always helpful because, of course, that that's a very visible. Um, uh, way of showing that you're actually on the ball, you're on the case. But at the same time, there's also other things. If you can identify the features that make it likely mm. for that crime to occur in that area, you can start putting things in place to make it less likely. I mean, even simple little things like, um, you know, uh, cutting down bushes so there's, there's a better line of sight so that people's visibility is better so they can see what's going on. People haven't got places to hide. Mm. Uh, all those sorts of little things. Plus, of course, yeah, I mean, any kind of 
public information campaign that, that informs people how to make themselves less likely to be the victim of crime is always helpful. When you were using the, 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 the uh, crime prediction a couple of years ago, what, what sort of patterns did you see? Well, it, it was things like, um, you know, if you had a, a problem, let's say you had a problem of burglary in one particular area, and, and if you could actually, and maybe you'd, you'd made a few arrests and you'd, you'd looked at the crimes that had happened, you could then actually sort of put that information into your intelligence system and say, well, the reason it happened is because, you know, this feature was at the location, such as, um, you know, maybe um, there was a, a alleyways at the back of the, of the houses mm. and that sort of thing, or, you know, and maybe an area was dark or there was a blind spot that wasn't covered by CCTV, all those sorts of things. And if you could then work out other areas where exactly those features occurred, you could then, as I say, go in and, and, and sort of start making preparations so that if the burglars sussed out this was a very similar sort of area to the one that was already being quite good for them as burglars, you, mm. you could actually fix those features before the problem even occurs. Stephen, it's fascinating. Uh, thank you very much for that. That's Stephen Colgan there, who is a former Met Police officer. He's from High Wycombe. Talking about predictive policing. I love stuff like that. It sounds incredible. It sounds a bit minority report, doesn't it? But it, there's, there's obviously some science involved with it, and it sounds like uh, it, it could be an interesting thing to follow. They're trying it out in Birmingham today. No doubt we'll keep an eye on that, see how they go, and um, see if it moves into the Three Counties area. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. You can give me a call at any point you want this morning, 08459 455 555, or you can email 3cr at bbc.co.uk. <laughs> It's 7.45, it's Tuesday the 18th of September. These are your headlines on BBC Three Counties Radio. The number of homeless families living in temporary bed and breakfast accommodation has significantly increased across the three counties. The General Medical Council says the number of complaints about doctors has risen by nearly a quarter over the past year to a record high of nearly 8,800. In sport, England's cricketers will announce their squad for the Test Series in India at 11 o'clock this morning. And coming up, volunteers at an HIV and AIDS charity are using their own money to keep it afloat after their funding was cut by Hertfordshire County Council. We'll hear the latest in their battle with the council before 8am. BBC Three Counties Radio. Jonathan Vernon-Smith. I don't know what they said because I never got caught, never. And I also used to push them in a fish pond and they used to always get shoved in there as well as I walked past. My God, you were horrible. Jonathan Vernon-Smith, weekday mornings from <laughs> nine on BBC uh. Three Counties Radio. <laughs> he does make me chuckle. You can hear his nose being raised in disgust uh, when you listen to his show. If you've never heard it before, I, I thoroughly recommend you stick around and listen to Justin uh, after nine o'clock. Now, um, here on BBC Three Counties, we have been following the story of a strip club opening in the centre of Ampthill. Back in July, residents in the town reacted angrily after plans to convert a former cafe into a lap dancing club were given the go-ahead. Over the last few weeks, residents have noticed more activity at the site, and a petition from locals opposing the opening of the club has gathered, gathered over 1,500 signatures. Well, Justin Dealey is at Ampthill this morning. Justin, what's been going on? Yes, good morning, Ian. As you mentioned, um, this was signed off by Central Bedfordshire Council. Uh, the licence back in July. Uh, since then, petitions continue to grow. A lot of people here very unhappy about this. And, of course, it's not the first time that Amptill has been accused of snobbery. Uh, earlier in the year, we had a, a tattoo parlour which opened, which, again, a few people thought wasn't in keeping with Amptill, which is a beautiful Georgian town, it's got to be said. Well, somebody who's not happy about this lap dancing club is Susan, who joins us live here in the radio car. Susan, welcome to the programme. 
Uh, this was signed off uh, a few weeks ago by Central Bedfordshire Council. Since then, what's been happening to that building? There's an awful lot of work been going on inside and out. Um, it, it looks like it's been gutted. And outside, there's a very large, very false-looking window stuck on the back, as well as a new door. Um, in actual fact, we're a bit cross because it looks just like the jewellers in front, and it's nothing to do with it. There's also, in the last two or three weeks, there's some new lines being painted at the back and a no parking. Well, I'm an amptual person, and I always thought that um, the Oxlip was actually a part of just the no man's land mm. how can anybody put no parking um you know the signatures i believe at the moment there's about a thousand online and there is certainly uh, five to six hundred on top of that and it is rising daily i mean you're saying you're not a snob you're saying you simply don't want this in amptil do you think that you can prevent this from opening because you are continuing to gather these signatures but but it has been signed off the license what we think it's going to open next month are you still convinced you can prevent that from happening i'm not convinced we can prevent it from happening but we can certainly you know carry on getting information um as as and where to find out if a it can be closed down b if if the licence happens to carry on, that it never gets reopened again. But, you know, it's not a case of what it is, it's where it is. Just the centre of Ampthill, right on the market square, in the car park where our children come from, dancing at 8 o'clock at night. It, it just is the wrong place for it. So we're not snobs. OK, so just lastly, what should go there instead? Um, a nice little Parisian cafe. You could have a good children's centre where you can get the teenagers to play snooker, a coffee bar. There's 101 things that we can think of that would be absolutely fabulous and would be welcomed by the residents of Amptill. But the man who owns this premises is uh, Lord John Shaley. He, of course, has already got one lap dancing club on the A5. He says, I've got an empty premises. I'm a businessman. I'm trying to make money. He describes himself as a Mr Walt Disney. He wants to bring something magical to the people of Amptill. Do you not respect the fact that he's actually just trying to, to make money here as a businessman? He needs to speak to some of the Amptill people because of the amount of signatures we've got in three weeks, and it's, it's probably closing on 2,000, that nobody would go to that club. Who would go on their doorstep? So it's going to be people from outside coming in. They're not going to use other local shops because the other local shops will be closed, and we're going to have to put up with any mess that comes out there the same as there is with other pubs. Thank you for your time. That's Susan joining us live here in our radio car. Now, Ian, you mentioned that about 10 to 7 this morning we were going to be live in Amptor, yes. w- which we are right now. Now, the person who has got this licence, Lord John Shaler, uh, we gave him a week earlier on to, to hopefully come on The Breakfast Show and talk to you live. Yep. I can tell you right now I've actually spoken to John Shaler this morning. Have you really? Just after Just after 7.30, he came out of the door. A number of builders turned up at the same time as well. And I said to him, John, I'm from the BBC, would like to talk to you he waved the hand at me and said go away so wow. we, we gave him a week but uh, he told me this morning to go away what time do you call this it's 7 30 in the morning oh, that's um, fair enough it's, it's fair enough it was early in the morning but as i said uh, we were going to be there anyway we have invited john shaler to join us on the program but sadly he has declined that offer well listen justin i'm gonna i'm gonna give him another week because i want to mm. be fair at this could you slip a little note through his letterbox 
just giving him our number and and explaining that we'd really like him to come on the show and it'll be it's going to be a completely fair impartial yeah. uh, discussion uh, and we, we, we know it'll be good if we could get a couple of the residents to to put their points directly to him well we, we have been fair already i think i yeah, think of course we, when we're talking about this story we, we have mentioned already he's got a successful club on yep. the a5 and what he's doing is perfectly legal he wants to open up a business in Amptill, but the people here are saying it's just not right for the town so i think it's, it's not going to be a case of putting john in the corner and no. firing lots of questions at him we just want not to find all. out what's going to be happening and when this club might actually be opening here in Amptill. so just put a little note through the door and another thing uh, justin that's just occurred to me it's mm. susan that you're with isn't it yes uh, i don't know if susan can hear me but i was wondering if i were to pay for you and susan <laughs> to go this is serious when the yeah, club opens yeah. to, to spend a night in the club would she be up for that? Just to, just to see what it's like. Maybe that would change her opinion. Very quickly, let's put this over to, uh, to, 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 to Susan here. Susan, you won't be watching me naked, by the way. But um, when, the, when the club <laughs> <Steady>. does open, <laughs> when this club does open, how would you feel about going along to have a look? W- would you even think about stepping inside those doors? Yes or no? If it was a case of finding out things that are potentially wrong to help us get it closed down, yes. Just so yes, Ian. That's a, okay, listen. We'll, we'll Justin, get back. When you get back, we'll discuss this. Drinks are on me. Yes. Uh, no, no, no. Your crystal or anything like that. I'm talking no. about half a shandy. Oh, Oh, lovely. Uh, but yes, okay, hopefully we can sort out you and Susan spending a night uh, at the lap dancing club in Amptill when it opens. Excellent. Thank you very much, Justin. Thank you. See you later on. Very uh, very exciting there. I didn't think she was going to say yes, but she did. Uh, we're talking about older drivers this morning. Um, there are over 150 drivers over the age of 100. And I kind of think that maybe there should be an age when perhaps you should stop driving. Well, Janice is in Ashridge. Good morning, Janice. Good morning. What's your take on this? Well, I think you told us earlier in the programme you were 39. That's correct. So you are likely to have to work until you are 70. Right. Under this present government idea. It's It's 68 now. It probably will be 70. More than likely. So therefore, you will be happy to lose your mobility and much of your independence as soon as you stop working. Let me put that to you and see your reaction. I'd get a bus pass. Right. So I, I'm I would... well over that age. I live... I would have to walk two miles to a bus, which would go twice a day. Right. What is... How do you... Uh, how would you like me to maintain my independence and mobility? You could have one of those buggies. I'm just thinking off, off of the, the, the my, top of my head here, but my, you could have a buggy? I'd rather have a pony and trap. <laughs> so, and I can imagine you in a pony and trap, Janice. I'm sure you'd look very, very elegant. Or oh, I'd rather ride than have a buggy. <laughs> OK, I will get you a pony and trap. But do you see Is my point? promise? Well, no, hang on a second. I back away from the promise of buying you a pony. I have a stable already. <laughs> I have pasture. Oh, I think now I've said it on the radio. I think I actually have to do it. I think that's the Ofcom law. I shall be talking to you after the programme oh in <laughs> uh, Janice, listen, I, I, my tongue may be slightly in my cheek, but you can see my point. There are some elderly drivers who are not up to the job, are they? I, I would totally agree with you that some people who are not well are not up to the job. I would agree with you entirely. And I think maybe there should be some restriction on motorways. I am, I'm well over 70 and would gladly adhere to not going on motorways. OK, Janice, thank you very much. Janice in Ashridge there. You're all kind of agreeing with me, pretty much. 
Okay, volunteers at an HIV and AIDS charity are using their own money to keep it afloat after their funding was cut by Hertfordshire County Council. We've been following this story uh, very closely on uh, BBC Three Counties. The council stopped funding the Crescent, which helps more than 300 people after switching their support to another organisation called Hearts Aid in Watford. Ian Murta is the manager of the Crescent. He's back in the studio with me now. Uh, Ian, there was a meeting yesterday between you and the HCC. What was decided? Um, not a great deal, really. Ah. It's just a case of, as you predicted when we met last, more of the same. Um, left the meeting feeling slightly exasperated. Uh, the same lines are being used over and over again, and despite us being able to prove that what they're saying isn't exactly accurate or indeed a, 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 at all a reflection of what's going on, they still seem to be sticking to the line that they're happy that everything is fine. So the situation is... You're getting no more money. Mm. Any money you were getting is now going to the Hearts Aid in yes. Watford. Yes. How long is uh, the, the, your centre sustainable on volunteers and donations? Well, it really depends on, from my point of view, personally, as I'm, I'm one of the volunteers, how long my savings will last. Right. Because obviously I have a mortgage to pay and, 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 and bills to meet of my own, mm. uh, and I'm using my funds to carry on providing support and cover those costs at the same time, plus put money in for things that need to be done there, like providing materials and things, so that we can continue to go on. Ian, isn't it a hopeless case now? Do you not have to admit defeat and, and pull out while you've still got some money, say, we did our best, but th- we just can't continue? Absolutely not. I mean, with these people are, di- are relying on us. We wouldn't have taken it this far and be still in this situation and continually complaining. And members who are living with this condition are actually coming forward now and talking to the press they came um, one came with me yesterday to to meet with the council these are people who would normally rely on their anonymity and yes yeah i mean the, the the reason that they're doing it is because they feel they have no other option mm. and that's not something that these people are going to do lightly the council seem to have this opinion that they're choosing not to use hearts aid services mm. what they're saying is the service that is being provided doesn't meet their needs they admitted yesterday, the council this is, that the provision that they um, provide, the, the provision in, in West Hertfordshire, in Watford, is only eight hours a week. Mm. Those are only available in, I think, the maximum slot is three hours. So there's two lots of three hours and one lot of two hours throughout the week. And they're all during the working day. Now, if they had any idea of, of the, the, the demographic that they're trying to reach, they would understand that those people are at work. Mm. How on earth are they going to be able to access something like that? Ian, very quickly, because we are running out of time, yeah. what, what is your next step? What, do, what, what are you going to do now? Well, if, nothing, if there is no change in direction of, from the County Council's point of view, then we're going to have to take something, be, be start doing things more drastically. We're going to have to start protesting openly. Um, as I said, mentioned before, chaining myself to something. Are you if actually going to chain yourself? If, it, if that's what it takes. I mean... <laughs> I've got to the point now where I'm committing myself, my money, my time. Um, I'm not doing this lightly. I'm not doing it to be awkward. We're not doing it because we like being difficult. Mm. There's a real need here, and these people are suffering, and I can't stand by and allow that to happen. When are you going to change yourself? Well, let's see what the County Council have to say. After their meeting, uh, the meeting yesterday, they did say that they were going to talk to HeartsAid about allo- reallocating some resources. Quite what that means, I'm not really sure. Okay. Um, so I'm going to allow them a short while, maybe a week or so, to, to come up with something. But if it's more of the same, as has been previously proven and nothing actually comes of it 
then that's when we will start doing something more drastic. Ian, again, we shall follow this story. Thank you very much for coming in. That's Ian Murta, who's the manager of The Crescent. Be- Bang on eight o'clock. We're a little bit late for the news. That's my fault. There's so much to cram in. And uh, I thought it was important we spoke to Ian there. And also got as many of your calls in as possible. More from you, a little bit from JVS, after the latest news with Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. very busy show this morning. I know lots of you trying to get in touch. I've just been handed uh, a, a big sheet full of texts. I will, I will do my best to get through these a bit later on, I promise. More homeless families are being temporarily placed in bed and breakfast in Hertfordshire. Have you ever helped a homeless person? Would you? Or have you been affected? I think the thing we've discovered this morning is that we're all just a whisker away. A couple of bad decisions or a couple of bad bits of luck. It could happen to us. And also, there are more than 150 drivers over the age of 100. Should older people be allowed to drive as long as they like? 81333, start your text 3CR, or give me a call 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. Deary me. Okay, well, it uh, would appear that I have, I have broken the computer that uh, gives me all the information I require for this show to work. Oh, no, there we go. I've managed to fix it. You can only have 20 windows open at a time. What does that mean? Now, more homeless families are being temporarily placed in bed and breakfasts in Hertfordshire. The National Housing Federation say that this figure has increased by over 250% in Hertfordshire and around 50% in Bedfordshire and Buckinghamshire in the last year. Earlier we heard from Dashi. She works on the production team here on this show and told me about the time her and her family became homeless and were housed in a bed and breakfast. I was just going on for 12. My dad had been ill for a number of years and he got a lot worse and his business ended up folding up. He'd got sicker and sicker. He yeah. couldn't... Um, he couldn't really cope with it. That folded. My mum became his full-time carer. Yeah. And, you know, they couldn't keep up, you know, to put it bluntly, they couldn't keep up with their mortgage repayments, so the, our house was repossessed, and we found ourselves homeless and having to be put into a and b um, first mm. of all, before we were placed in temporary accommodation. So how many permanent. of you were there? How many in your family? Four of us. There was my mum, my dad, myself, and my younger sister. It all happened quite quickly, actually. I think... I came home from school one day, actually, and everything was packed up. Wow, All really? our stuff was gone, yep. What do you remember of, of being in a B&B? I remember it being very brown. Everything, everything in the hotel was brown and or, or dark, dark sort of maroon. And I remember when we moved in, it was, it was a room, and it was smaller than the stu- studio, and it had one tiny double bed, mm. two single beds cramped in, a small chest of drawers and a little TV on top, and wow. then there was a bathroom off the side of it. For all four of you? For all four of us. And there was no, there was literally no space for us to walk between the beds. It was pretty much you opened the door and there was um, four, you know, three mattresses. Wow. The studio, I should say, is about 12 foot by, I don't know, 15 it, it was foot, much like smaller. It was probably about a good half the size of this to three quarters. Wow. Well, we're asking this morning, have you ever helped a homeless person? Madeline in Sandy called in and would like to help, but she's a bit afraid. It does make me feel quite guilty because I have a house that really is too large for me and I rattle around with it in it on my own. And I'm sort of thinking, well, could I actually offer somebody a home? Well, yes, I suppose I could, but then we live in a funny old world and you think to yourself, well, am I going to let myself in for a whole lot of problems? Mm. 
Um, I don't think it's that people wouldn't. I think that they're probably afraid to because they don't quite know what's going to come next. And, yes, I mean, I do look at these people on the streets and I think, well, as you said earlier, you know, how, how did you actually get to this state? Becca Sapsford is the support manager for the Hearts Young Homeless Organisation. She's on the line now. Good morning, Becca. Morning. Becca, how do you feel about families being placed into B&Bs? Um, I think, to be fair, it's it's not a situation that anybody would want to be in. Um, being placed in bed and breakfast, quite often it's out of the area that you live. It's away from a lot of any support networks that you have. And in a time of crisis in your life, which is extremely scary, you don't know where you're living. A home is the most essential thing that any of us need. And to not have that is extremely, it's, it's, it's scary for a lot of people. Um, so to be placed away from area in a bed and breakfast, it's emergency accommodation where you don't know where you're going to go the next day. You don't know how long you're going to live there. Um, as you heard earlier, it, it is only a room. You, If you've got young children and you're trying to sustain family life, feeding, you know, having good meals, things like that, and you're in a room with maybe a kettle and no other cooking facilities, anybody on low incomes, it's going to be very difficult to be able to sustain a good family life, um, keeping the children near their schools, support networks, as I said earlier. It's a horrible time for anyone. If B&Bs aren't the answer, what would you rather see instead? I think, to be fair to the local authorities who have the accommodation, is there is a lack of resources wherever you go. There isn't enough accommodation available. Therefore, in times of crisis, especially if someone's become homeless that night and there is no time to prepare or plan for their move, um, sometimes bed and breakfasts are the only option. And it's very difficult for... I work for a charity, and sometimes you have to weigh up being very realistic as you know it's not the most... It's the, not the best place for anyone to go to however is that better than nothing so i think if there is a need for more resources all across the country Becca, you said something there that, that struck me you said if someone becomes homeless that night it can, yeah. it can be that sudden it can it can be that sudden you can become homeless for any reason and um i think a lot of people it, it, a lot of people judge that you become homeless because of it's something you've done it's your fault that's not always the case sometimes there's a lot of people out there who they're homeless through no fault of their own it comes on very suddenly they're not aware of it for instance a couple if you're in a relationship with someone you're living with that person you don't have any family you don't have any support around you and that relationship breaks down and you have no rights to that accommodation you're in where are you going to go to if the relationship breaks down you don't always know that's going to happen you haven't always had time to prepare and save for a deposit to move into a private rented property and sometimes it can really come slap you in the face very very quickly why do you think the numbers are so big in Hertfordshire and there's been such a big increase um, I think what's going on with the economy um, has a, a big part to play in. Um, Hertfordshire is, is seen as a very affluent area. However, that isn't the case. It's very expensive to afford to private rent a property. So if you've not got a, a job that pays extremely well, actually, there isn't much out there that you can afford. And um, I think the, the job there's a lot of job losses that you hear about going around. There isn't as much... Um, new jobs available for people to go into. So there is a lot more people who are finding themselves in this situation through no fault of their own. What, what can be done, Becca? 
I think it's resources. I think it comes down to the fact that we don't have enough accommodation to meet the needs of the people in this country who find themselves in times of trouble and who require a bit of support to get them back on track again. Becca, thank you very much. Becca Sapsford is the support manager for the Hearts Young Homeless Organisation. Across beds, hearts and bugs, this is BBC Three Counties Radio. I should just remind you, dear listener, that, that Saturdays, of course I wouldn't work on a Saturday, for, far from it, but Saturday between six and nine, uh, Ben Jones does the breakfast show. Um, guests, stories, bit of music, Ben Jones. What, what more would you want on a Saturday morning? To be honest, he's good. I like Ben. He's a, he's a top fella. Uh, and it's, it's a cracking listen. BBC Three Counties. Saturday mornings, six till nine. Now, we've been talking uh, about driving and older drivers. I have put forward the idea that perhaps older drivers are not quite as safe as we've been led to believe. And that at the age of 65, you should have to do a driving test every year. And at the age of 70, well, maybe you should be asked to stop driving. Steve Cole has texted in. I bet your views will change when you hit 70. I don't think they will, Steve. I I would be more than happy for the good of the court. There are too many cars on the road anyway, aren't there? Really? Vic says, I'm nearly 71. The faculties I'm losing don't affect my driving. Vic? Oh. Sarah, have you tried travelling by bus in rural areas? Each case should be decided on individual merits. Poor driving is not limited to older people. But some of you agree with me. Text here, all these people say they haven't had an accident, but I bet they've caused loads. Let's go to Ray. Good morning, Ray. Good morning. What's your take on this, please? My take on it is it doesn't matter what age you are, it matters whether you're a good driver. Right, but it's, 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 it's well known, isn't it, that as you get older, your body and mind deteriorate. That's a fact, isn't it? Yes, it's also a fact that many young drivers don't have what it takes to be out on the road. Oh, I'll give you that. I've met many a middle-aged driver who's too busy, I think, worrying about work. Yeah. And they're not mentally driving. They're at work or at home or at wherever, and they do stupid things. I think driving is a matter of paying attention to what you're doing, focusing in, and I think everybody should have to go through driving tests, not taking test on oh do you recognize this sign but actually get out there and drive because we all develop bad habits we do get bad habits i I would be up for having a driving test every few years and i agree with you the younger drivers i don't think people should be allowed to drive until they're 23 (laughs) and you should go out there and try riding on the buses I've been on the, I go on the buses all the time. I love the buses. You, then you're in a big city. Well, uh, right, listen, stay there. We've got Marina. Good morning, Marina. Good morning, Ian. You sound as if you're in a little box somewhere. I know, I do. But I, in many ways, I am. But uh, don't worry, you're, it's sounding all right on the radio, I'm led to believe. Marina, what's your take on this? Uh, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 78. Ooh. Yes, past your driving age limit, isn't uh, it? You're not driving, are you? Uh, of course I'm driving. Ian. Really? Ian, I t- I, because I thought I'd got into bad habits over the years, which we all do, and let's face that, um, I went along to the Rhoda um, at Bedford uh, driving lesson, and I took my advanced driving test and I passed. And I don't think that my driving has deteriorated any, any at all since. But I will add to the rejoinder that I do think that there are lots of people on the road of my age that are not safe to be on there. So in many ways, uh, Marina, you're kind of agreeing with me that, that surely for the good of the cause, if there are a significant number of older people, older drivers who aren't that safe, we should stop all older drivers. Yes, but are you going to also stop all drivers who are not safe? And if you look at the statistics, the statistics prove that the older drivers are not the people who have the most accidents. Ray, what do you make to, to Marina's point there? 
I agree. I think it has to go with training and testing. There we go. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, that was uh, Ray and Marina, uh, who um, disagree with me slightly that um, perhaps drivers over the age of 70 should be asked to stop driving. What do you think? 08459 455 555. It's 8.16. It's Tuesday the 18th of September. These are your headlines this morning on BBC Three Counties Radio. The number of homeless families living in temporary accommodation and bed and breakfasts has risen in Hertfordshire by over 250% in the last year. The General Medical Council says the number of complaints about doctors in the UK has risen by nearly a quarter over the past year to a record high of nearly 8,800. In sport, Lewis Hamilton has played down speculation over his future with McLaren by stating he's still 100% focused on claiming his second Formula One title with the British team. We'll have a full weather bulletin shortly with Steve Weston and coming up, we meet a councillor from Flamstead whose persistence to get streetlights turned off has saved £21,000. BBC Three Counties Radio. Roberto Peroni. Weekdays from three <laughs> on BBC Three Counties oh, Radio. Jonathan Vernon Smith has um, kind of walked into the studio wagging his finger and tutting and, and saying saying that I'm a brave man putting out my theory that perhaps, and it's, it's just, I'm, you know, it's just a theory. I'm saying that perhaps drivers over the age of 70 should be asked to stop. Mm. And you were telling me that's a brave... Well, I remember many years ago at another radio station, I did a similar programme. Yes. And I, I stated similar opinions to your and it's the only time I've ever been physically assaulted by a listener. Really? As I came out of the studio having finished my show, oh, I walked into the reception at this radio station and there was an elderly lady standing there with a handbag. She had the handbag in Did a clenched get, fist. Were you handbagged? And I, I said, hello. I thought she was an adoring fan. Hello, love. Would you like a signed photo? Yes. And she went, are you the one? And I said, yes. And with that, ooh, she hit me with her handbag round my head. I said, what are you doing that for? She said, how dare you? <laughs> and as she stormed out the front door of the radio station, she said, I'm turning to Jeremy Vine. <laughs> 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 I'm laughing out of fear. <laughs> because that could happen to me today. I thought that the, the listeners this morning would realise it's a sensible proposition, but they've been very, very upset by the idea. You don't think your views might be just a little extreme? Stop driving at 70? Well, the thing is, I'm, when I'm 70, I will be more than happy to stop driving. <laughs> I will have my grandkids to drive <laughs> we'll me around. remind you of that on your 69th birthday. I'll have, I'll have my bus pass. Right. It'll be fine. I'm looking, forward to be, I'm looking forward to being a very grumpy old man. I'm a grumpy middle-aged man. When I get to being old, I'm going to be very miserable. Looking forward to it. Well, on the big phone in this morning, we're going to continue this. It won't okay. surprise you to learn. Yes. And I'm asking, are older drivers perfectly safe? Hang on a minute, you've turned that question so you won't, so you won't get hit again. <laughs> I'm certainly not. I'm not intending to be handbagged today. <laughs> Please. Uh, the Institute of Advanced Motorists is asking the government to look to how it's going to manage the increasing number of elderly drivers on our roads. Figures from the IAM say 10 million people alive today are expected to reach 100, and the chances are they'll be driven around by their 70-year-old children. Mm. That's if you're not elected Prime Minister. <laughs> it's not calling for compulsory retesting, but thinks the government should have a plan in place to cater for the older driving generation. Well, from nine this morning, I want your views. Are older drivers perfectly safe? I remember with our family, we had a, a horrible, horrible position to have to take with my grandmother, who's right. now 98. Yes. At still eight, going strong? At eight, well, yes. Good for her. Uh, at 89, she was still driving. Yes, you would have taken her licence away 19 years before. Correct, yes. 
Um, it's true to say, when she was 89, she wasn't the best driver in the world. I remember being, she had a very old, uh, pale blue Vauxhall Astra, and seemingly this Vauxhall Astra didn't need to stop at red lights. <laughs> and I remember... <laughs> I'll try not to laugh, but I, I remember, I remember sitting in that car, clinging to the seat for dear life, as she just whizzed through, completely oblivious to everywhere. But the, the serious side of this was, it, it was left to the family, yes, to have to pick up the pieces because we had to take her car keys off her, mm. and she hated us for it. Of I course, mean, for years afterwards, she said, "Oh, if I had my little car, I used to love my little car. I could yeah. go about, and you know, now I just sit in my room and I can't do." You anything. did this to me. Yeah, you did that. It was yeah. all my dad's fault. You took my car away. Oh, brave, brave on him to do that. Well done. Well, he said to her, "If I don't, you can't keep driving. You're going to kill a child, and then we're going to be faced with the fact that you know you've killed somebody. So you've got to give me your car keys." But is this something that lots of families have had to face? Are older drivers perfectly safe, or have you had an experience? Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. We'll discuss it from nine thank you very much uh, jonathan vernon smith always worth a listen and um if you want to uh, find the studios to handbag jonathan the address is online right uh, it's the weather there i think we should oh no weather's not there in that case i'll read this little text that we've got Ian, i don't mind old people driving but when i was working i couldn't work out why old retired people were on the road before 9 a.m well this is a good point Maybe older people could go on the roads when, it, when the roads are a bit quieter. So sort of from 10.30, when Jeremy Carl's finished, till about three. That'll be all right, wouldn't it? They aren't on their way to work. This text continues. Now I'm on maternity leave, I have noticed on a number of occasions, older people do not always indicate, and they don't always see everything. As there are a lot of elderly at my local supermarket, I'm very cautious while walking with my baby across uh, the pelican crossing because i need to make sure they see us the scary moments i've had are unfortunately with the elderly let's get the weather news now beds hearts and bucks weather bbc three counties radio i feel a bit bad talking about the, the elderly than going to steve weston there's no link there at all steve let's have the weather please yeah, not too bad today coming up. And there's the weather forecast from me, Steve Weston. Thank you, Steve. Older drivers. Uh, let's talk to Derek and Royston. Morning, Derek. Good morning to you. Yeah, what can I do for you, sir? Yeah, there's nothing stopping you taking another test on your own part. Um, Hertfordshire uh, County Council, yep. if you contact the road safety officer, he does courses. And oh. I've just been on a course within, what, the last six months... In which case it's a day lecture and then a run, um, a test by an advanced motorist um, for about an hour. So did you do, are you saying you took a driving test? Yes. And how did it go? Very well. Did you pass? Yes. Congratulations. Yeah. But this is my fourth one since I've retired. Have you passed them all? Yes. Okay, well there you go Derek, listen, excellent work. Thank you, Derek in Royston. He's taking tests, he's 78 years old. I don't know. I'm just putting this out there. You know, don't, let's not fall out over this, dear listener. We've got on so well so far. I don't want you to hate me because of this. I'm just saying that maybe. Now, what should central Milton Keynes look like in the future? A public consultation is underway to make sure that future developments in central Milton Keynes are in line with what local people want. George Marvin has lived in Milton Keynes Village for 50 years. The village gave the new city its name. Um... George, what have you seen change over the last 50 years? Oh, you're there. Sorry, Lots George, I had, the wrong, I had the wrong fader down. It was my fault. George, what have you seen change over the last 50 years? Everything. 
Give us a few examples. Well, it's changed from a little village yeah. in the country to a village in the middle of a city. Mm. And to my mind, it's brought a lot of work for everybody. So I'm happy with it at my age. So so you think, you think that the, the changes that you've seen taking place to Milton Keynes over the last uh, 50 years or so, they've all been pretty positive as far as you're concerned? Oh, yes, very much. Is there anything that you think isn't quite right that maybe the developers got wrong? Not really, no. Because, because some people would say that the, the, the shopping centre that is a, perhaps a bit intrusive, that some of the things they're doing to the landscape isn't quite in keeping. You would disagree with that, would you? Well, it don't bother me because I don't do much shopping. <laughs> you, don't, you don't go. You don't, you don't spe- spend much of your time in Topshop or next no, or anything. thanks. Good for you. Well done. No, but, I mean, we are living six minutes away... It's here on the doorstep, and yet we're in the middle of a country. Mm. So the family go, and that's all I'm bothered. And that's a, th- a thing I think a lot of people will not be aware of about Milton Keynes, that there are some fantastic little country villages and little bits and pieces about, aren't there? Well, if you ride round it, a lot of it, it's in the country. Yeah. And the people who knock it have never been here to look at it. There are discussions with the council about the future developments of the centre of Milton Keynes. What do you hope Milton Keynes will look like in the future? Uh, well, I, I couldn't be bothered, really, at my age. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. How old are you, George, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 82. Good for you. Do you drive? Yes. Oh, dear. Well, let's, not, let's not fall out over that. <laughs> no, uh, I'm uh, hoping to drive again tomorrow. I've mm. had cataracts done. Oh, blimey. Everything all right? You feeling better? Um, oh, yes, very much. Well I done. can read the small print now. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Now, Katie Beardsworth is there with you. She mil- moved to Milton Keynes from Edinburgh two weeks ago. Katie, why did you move to Milton Keynes? Why did you move from Milton oh, Keynes? Can, can she not hear us? No. <laughs> she stood at the side. Oh, she's me. there. Katie, can you hear me now? Can you yes, hear Katie? You. OK, sorry, right, George, you stay there, don't worry. Katie, why did you move to Milton Keynes? Um, I relocated down here for work. And wh- what do you think of the centre of Milton Keynes? I was pleasantly surprised. I think there's a lot of um, uh, views of Milton Keynes, if you've not been here, that it's a bit of a concrete jungle, it's soulless, everyone talks about the roundabout. Yeah. Um, but actually, as a, as a town centre, to get around, it's amazingly easy. I've never known things so easy to get from one side to the other, um, even at rush hour. And uh, there's a lot more greenery than I expected. Um, I mean, I moved here from Edinburgh, so I must have quite liked it. <laughs> Is there anything that doesn't work for you, Katie? Anything you'd like to change? For me, although there's kind of green spaces around the outskirts, in the centre itself, there's not really anywhere you can go and kind of grab a quick bite to eat outside, nowhere to kind of go and sit and have your lunch or anything, which I think is really missing. It's just very grey in the centre itself. So you'd like to see a, a bit, bit more green? A bit more green, somewhere you can go and kind of relax at lunchtime or after work or something. And I think as well, it's a lot of, all, all of kind of bars and restaurants um, seem to be very chain-orientated. There's nothing really independent, a bit kind of... A bit of a lack of character, I think, and I think that's what's missing a little bit. George, you still there? Yes. Could yep. I, could listen, Katie's new to Milton Keynes. How do you fancy taking her on a little tour and finding some nice <laughs> cafe, cafes with her? 
Oh, not a bad idea. I don't know what the wife would say. Well, listen, <laughs> George, she doesn't need to know. <laughs> no, she doesn't, because she's asleep in bed at the moment. <laughs> she's asleep in bed at half past eight? Unbelievable. <laughs> George, Katie, listen, thank you. Both been excellent sports there. That was uh, George, who's been in Milton Keynes for over 50 years. And Katie, who's just moved to Milton Keynes uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about the discussions on the future of Milton Keynes. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. Plenty to go in the last half hour of the show, including uh, your slightly irate calls. I think I may have um, upset some of you this morning about older drivers. We'll be talking about how you can save, or how a lot of money was saved, just by switching off some lights. But I should tell you about this. Nick Coffer's on uh, from 12 o'clock, and joining him today between 1 and 2, it's his ever-popular osteopath, Deborah Battams. Ooh. I might go and see her. My back needs a little click. Lower back pain. Uh, if you'd like advice on aches, pains, headaches, joint discomfort, back pain, make sure you get your call in early, as it's always a very busy hour with her. Uh, we've got Steve in Heath and Reach. Morning, Steve. Morning, Ian. You've called in uh, about older drivers. What, what, what do you yeah. think? Well, the, the, my view on life is quite simple. You know, older drivers should still be allowed to drive. But at the age of 70, they should be made to take a test have a medical, have a hearing test, and an eye test, okay? There should be a free-of-charge service that should be available through their insurance as they get older. Um, And and it would just simplify everything, in my view, because at that point, there's no ambiguity whether um, a doctor can say quite clearly, you are not fit to drive a vehicle because you can't see further than 20 foot in front of you, or whatever it may be. Steve, what you're saying makes sense. I've got a a text from Liz. I don't know how true this is. When you're older and your driving licence needs renewing, all you have to do is answer some questions. A doctor doesn't even have to sign it, so you can put anything you like. I don't know That's if that is the, ca- is that, is that the case. Yeah, my dad, my dad, in fairness, is 83. Right. And he still drives. Right. And he just signs um, a little form and sends it off and everything's okay. Yeah. Now, I, I also want to twist this around the other way as well, because yep. I want anybody that is under the age of 25, at the age of 25, to be retested. Yep. Because it is true, younger drivers cause more accidents um, than older drivers. And the fact is... Having just driven my wife to work and been driving back, I have a hands-free kit. But I've seen four youngsters with mobile phones strapped to their ears. Now, my view is, you get caught with a mobile phone as well, that's it. Six months ban. No arguments, no nothing. I'd agree with that, but Steve, I see lots of middle-aged drivers and businessmen driving along with... And and van drivers with phones. Sorry, it isn't just youngsters. I'm not having to go just right. young. I'm talking about everybody. Six months ban, no questions, no nothing. All right, Steve, I'm with, I'm with you on that, and I don't think I think 17 is too young to drive. I don't think anyone should be driving under the age of 23. Steve, we've got to move on. We're uh, uh, plenty to cram in the last 25 minutes or so. But thank you very much. Uh, there. Now, listen. This is a fantastic story. A great example of common sense. Remember that? Prevailing over a Jobsworth government department. If you've driven under Junction 9 of the M1 near Flamstead, I did it the other day, uh, since the motorway was winded, you've, uh, widened, you've probably noticed that the bright light's under the bridge. That is until recently. Now due to the persistence of a local parish councillor, some of the lights have been turned off. And this is incredible when I heard this. It saved a massive £21,000 a year. Well, the gentleman in question is uh, joining me in the studio. It's Councillor Julian Taunton from Flamstead Parish Council. Have you really saved £21,000 a year just by turning some lights off? 
Morning, Ian. Morning. I can't claim all the credit myself because there were a number of people involved, including our MP, Mike Penning, right. who did a fantastic job for us. But, yes, the figure that the um, Highways Agency has come up with when we asked them how much we'd saved is uh, 21,000. Why were these lights put there in the first place? Well, as you mentioned, the motorway was widened by having a fourth lane put in in either direction, mm. and that increased the width of the bridge uh, to uh, more than uh, 25 metres. Right. And there is, believe it or not, a British standard, so we can't blame Europe for this. It's one. not Europe this time. No. Thought, okay, that's interesting. It's, it's, that's a Brit- British standard that there must, must be this level of lighting for um, any small tunnels. So it, it was, I was going to say, it was perceived as, as being a tunnel. That's right. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's why you had to have these ridiculously powerful lights in there. Yes, and we thought at the time that it was too much for the job because there was a fire in the control box right next to uh, there, which meant we were without lights for a period of time. Right. And then they came back so on the, again. So the fuse went or something? I don't know what the problem was, but certainly the fire brigade was in attendance and they put the fire out. And uh, uh, local locals were kind of upset about the well, lights being put in, weren't they? Tremendous number of local people, yes, including the whole parish council, of course. Complaining yes. they were too bright. Yes, that's right. And it was a total waste of energy because they were on both days and night. So how did you go about... They were on daytime. (laughs) Yes, they were, yes. Well, we were very fortunate (laughs) in that um, our MP, Mike Penning, um, was made uh, an undersecretary at the Department of Transport. Right, ah. And the Highways Agency came within his bailiwick. Okay. So we uh, explained the position to him. He came down and he had a look, and uh, he started asking questions of his civil servants. How uh, long? So I'm guessing this this kind of this, this kind of grew and grew and grew. How long from you sort of getting together with the parish council to, to someone coming down and having a look at it and assessing it? Yes, it was around about March 2011 right. that we really started getting words on paper. Yeah, and uh, it's just recently that uh, that they have reduced the amount of lighting so and made all the costs. Oh, so it's over. But it's over the. We asked the question also, or I asked the question also, being a difficult so-and-so. Good for you. Um, are they going to re- replicate this elsewhere? Because yeah. it can't be, this, this is the only bridge. Yeah. And uh, they've done a study, apparently, and they think they may be able to save up to 30% of their oh. current energy costs by so doing. It's so obvious. <laughs> Did anyone at any point, though, say to you, uh, Julian, come on, that there, are, there are more important things to worry about, just let it go. No, I don't think they did. Right. And certainly Mike didn't, mm. because he takes his uh, duty to do his constituents very, uh, very uh, strongly. When you yeah. first raised it to the Highways Agency, they weren't yeah. particularly accommodating, were they? It was a pat on the head. Really? Yeah. We, we can't do that, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's not, it, it was a proper job's worth. It's more than my job's worth to, to do anything about this. Yeah. Uh, you must have been... When did you find out about the £21,000 that's been saved? Oh, um, 5th of September. You must have been over the moon to have got that. What yes. a validation of, of yes. y- all your efforts. There wasn't exactly a cheer from the parish council, but almost. <laughs> you should get them to send you half that money. <laughs> Go and have a night, a night out somewhere or a weekend away. Uh, and so across the country, this is going to be looked into, and they could save yes. 30% of, of, the, the, of, the, of the energy costs. That's, that's incredible. Mind you, their, their budget is about £22 billion, so... Uh, right. That's, that's but it does make you think, in these the times of austerity and everyone cutting back and everyone trying to save... I'm always telling my wife to turn the lights off at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, that surely they, you would think the government or somebody in charge would go, right, what really simple things can we do to save... And in the great scheme of things, £21,000 isn't that much money. No. But you're right, you spread it across the country. Mm. That, then it starts to become significant. Yes. yes. Well, I was very pleased to read, going off the subject just a little, that uh, Justin Green 
Greening, who's taking overseas aid, mm. is making her civil servants go through their budgets line by line and justify each one. Excellent. Time-consuming process, but I know it's worked in industry. Yeah. But you, you have to. But these times like these, when we're all trying to save a few quid, mm. everybody should be going through and going, right, we don't need yeah. that, we don't need that, that's fine. It makes Sorry. perfect sense. Yeah. Listen, congratulations. Well done. I'm, I'm you, all kindly. for the, the, the little man, and I mean that, you know, in, in, <laughs> against the big machine. It turns out you are actually <laughs> quite short. But, but you know what I'm saying, against the big machine and actually making uh, a positive achievement and, and helping the local mm. community. So well done, yep. Julian. Thank okay. you very much for coming in. Not at all. Any, okay. other, any other things you've got your eyes on? Uh, we, we do have a bit of a traffic problem gaining access to A5 right. from um, our, our village of Flamstead because it's rather close to that junction and a lot of people come tearing down the road and mm. won't let anyone out but that's going to be a, a longer term job you can listen if anyone can do it Julian you can best of luck thank you very much that's Julian Taunton who's uh, from Flamstead Parish Council excellent work indeed uh, now we're talking about older drivers Lynn is in Hazelmead good morning Lynn good morning good morning um I just feel you're being a bit ageist. Really? Why is that? Well, I work with older people, and I have driven behind them on the road. Yes. And a lot of mine are absolutely fine. Right. Um, I have to say, I'm not so impressed with uh, the middle age, which which, which I'm also in, mm. um, especially people like reps. No. under pressure to get from A to B. Yes. They're tearing along the road. They have All they've got in their mind is their next job. And, you know... Um, a lot of my oldies drive very safely. Mm. I mean, there is the flip side of that. I know older people, you know, things slow down, etc. But I don't think you should say just because you're 71 you should not drive. I think we should all have... I mean, the middle-aged people, I think, are probably the worst. We're really complacent and lazy. And, you know, um, I think everybody should have a test and a retest maybe every five years it wouldn't hurt us do you know what Lynn? i am slowly coming around to this way of thinking and i think you're right that we can is it 17 you can take your driving test i can never remember yeah, 17 or 18 uh, yeah it does um, seem I, amazing yeah, son do his at that age yeah i think he's too young i, I think um, it's see i learned so, at 17 i think it's young but it is amazing that i took my driving test 22 years ago and things have changed so much and i would agree with you that perhaps in middle age uh, we should be taking driving tests every five six seven years <laughs> and perhaps i think it was steve the last caller who said that from the age of 70 that maybe that there should be a, a full kind of medical check for people every year just to make sure that their faculties are there and that they can hear and they can see because it does seem a nonsense doesn't it lynn that just to get your <coughs> license renewed when you're older you just fill in a form and send it oh, off absolutely. and you're not physically checked yeah i think something needs to happen in this country definitely you know i've i've seen some very old people driving that you think good grief you shouldn't be driving but it's very hard uh, for that person to think, right, okay, I'm not very safe on the road, I'll catch the bus. A lot of the time, catching the bus is even harder than just jumping in their car. It can be, you're um, right. But uh, also, you, you, you raise an interesting point there, that, that, that often the older person doesn't necessarily know that they are reacting a bit slower, that their eyes yeah. have gone a little bit, which well, is why we need an outside body to monitor with, it. The same with middle-aged people and everybody. I think it, it's not just when you get to 70. There's some wonderful 70 year olds i've got wonderful 90 year olds you know so i don't you can't say age you have to say ability and capability of the person that's driving the car and that could be somebody you know in their 40s that is wanting to get from a to b very fast or it could be you know people have got so much pressure we're all rush 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 um i don't think you can say at 70 you have to have a test it should be way before 70 i think every five years we should all have to take a test lynn thank you very much let's go to jackie and shenley good morning Jackie. 
Hello, Jackie. Oh, you're there. Hello, Hello, Jackie. Yes, Hi. what can I do for you? Uh, my mother-in-law is 77. She is perfectly fixed, both mentally and physically. She's obviously been driving all of her life. Um, we live in quite a rural area. Now, if, if she had her driving licence taken away at 70, she would have to walk about three-quarters of a mile to a mile down a very fast um, road without any curbs at all to get to the nearest bus stop. And, you know, on some occasions, if she wanted to take her dogs away for the weekend or whatever, she'd even have to have her dogs with her. Now, how can that be safe? Well, you're right, that isn't safe. But obviously, there there should be a a better bus provision in her local area. But there can't be because of the physical position of her house. She would have to move. We don't have any neighbours. Wow, gosh. Well, Jackie, my my position is softening slightly. Do you think that she is a safe and, and able driver? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. She is perfectly safe. Uh, would you agree? We, Lynn kind of suggested that, that perhaps we should be having more tests, and we had a caller earlier, I think it was Steve, who said that people over 70, maybe they should have a test every year, a physical test and a driving test. Would you be up for that? Um, a physical test, maybe, but not every year. I mean, you, oh. you're talking, you know, you're, you're on about their, their pride as well. I mean, these are perfectly fit and able people. But pride doesn't come into it. Safety is, is paramount, surely. It does, but as the last caller said, there are an awful lot of unsafe middle-aged people, mm. young people. And, I mean, I watch a lot of the um, traffic cops and things on the telly. Well, and why, some of them, why some of those people drive? Jackie, listen, we'll, we'll let you go there because we're losing the line slightly, but thank you very much, Jackie and Shenley. He's got a 77-year-old mother who uh, she claims is fit to drive. I think my position is softening slightly. You've persuaded me. It's 8.46, it's Tuesday the 18th of September. These are your headlines on BBC Three Counties Radio. The number of homeless families temporarily placed in bed and breakfast accommodation in Hertfordshire increased by over 250% in the last year. The General Medical Council says that the number of complaints about doctors in the UK has risen by nearly a quarter over the past year to a record high of nearly 8,800. In sport, Lewis Hamilton has played down speculation over his future with McLaren by stating he's still 100% focused on claiming his second Formula One title with the British team. The weather across beds, hearts and bucks, cloudy with sunny spells and the chance of one or two light showers. Top temperature is 17 degrees. Coming up, a Euro Millions winner who bought a ticket somewhere in the Stevenage and Hitchin area is running out of time to claim their fortune. We'll find out more after 8.45. BBC Three Counties Radio. I just say thank you everyone we've had so many phone calls and texts and emails most of you not agreeing with me this morning and that's wonderful and it's great and I'm, I'm really pleased that you feel uh, you can come on this show and express uh, your opinions like that they're always welcome we won't fall out over this will we we'll still be friends good uh, I just reminded that this morning, Justin, uh, when I say friends, you know, don't come around to my house all at once. That would be, <laughs> be uncomfortable. Uh, just a reminder, we had Justin Dealey outside what is going to be the new lap dancing club in Amped Hill. Uh, and the invitation is there to, to Lord John Shaler, who runs that business. The invitation uh, is there. Please come on this show. We would love to talk to you. You'll be treated fairly and with respect. It will be great to get your, your side of the argument. Because I do feel this is developing slightly into a, a, a bit of a one-sided argument, a head hunt. I don't think that's fair. And I'd like to make it a, a, a little bit fairer. Talking about older drivers, I did say that uh, drivers over 70 should be uh, stopped from driving. I'm softening slightly after a suggestion from a caller that perhaps they should be tested physically uh, and th- th- mentally um, every year. 
just to make sure that they're okay and, th- you know, that the, the, the perhaps that should be the way. Well, David in Marsh Farm called me earlier, and I suspect, I, I think I may have upset him slightly. Well, my father's 92, he's still driving, he lives a very independent life, no troubles at all. He, sh- he shouldn't be allowed to drive, David. If, if I were the, well, the, the I president... Think, uh, Ian, I think you're talking a load of nonsense. Why? Be- because he's a perfectly safe driver. Oh. He's got full no claims. He hasn't had any accidents. He's never in. He's, he drives to Devon every year. Oh, my goodness. But no, I, be- I bet he does 30 miles an hour in the middle lane of the motorway. I don't think so. He drives perfectly well. <laughs> How old are you, then, David? 66. Still working. Right, well, you should take a driving test every year until you're 70, and then you should stop. I think you're talking an absolute load of nonsense. In that case, I'm going to say goodbye. Goodbye. Well, well, our reporter, Justin Dealey, has been finding out what age limit you in the three counties would like to impose. Now, Carl, you've been a lorry driver for 35 years, and you think that once you get to 70, that's it, you shouldn't be allowed to drive anymore. Tell us why. Uh, well, for the similar reason, I don't think you're uh, quick enough reflexes, things like that, you know. I shouldn't be allowed to drive after about 70. I mean, you're driving every single day, so yeah. have you seen problems with older drivers then? Yeah, drivers, older drivers, you see them on the motorways, pulling out when they shouldn't be pulling out, too slow on the motorways, things like that, just causes accidents. How would you feel, though, if you get to 70, you've had years of driving experience, and somebody said to you, sorry, Carl, you can't drive anymore, <laughs> even though you're fit to drive, in your yeah, opinion? Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, but at the end of the day, if you're causing problems, you shouldn't be there, should you, really? And the idea, I mean, there's only one person we're talking about here, but somebody is 106 years old who's got a, a driving licence in this country. When you first heard that, did that kind of fill you with dread? Oh, yeah, shock, yeah, most definitely, yeah. I always thought they took them off them after a, a certain age anyway. Well, at 70 years old, you retested yeah. every three years. That gives you some sort of safety, I suppose. But you're yeah. saying it's just too dangerous now. The it's roads have yeah. changed. You know, yeah. we've got to start something which would, in your opinion, protect other people. Yeah, most definitely. Now, Sam, you're being slightly more impartial than your colleagues here. You're saying that everyone's different. They can't be a standard age of 70 or 80 because everyone's driving and everyone mentally is different at that age. Yeah, yeah. No, I just, I, I just think that there should come a time when everybody should be retested, because everybody's capable of different things at different ages. Mm. Um, and I, I don't think it would be fair to say, right, once you're 75, you can't drive anymore. I mean, I've got some elderly relatives, 85, 90, and they drive okay, but I've also can think of one in particular that's only 65 that perhaps shouldn't be driving. You know, so you can't just cut off. You can't. You can't just give an age, can you? Really, that you can cut off. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be fair. I don't think. No. Now, no. my uh, tongue has been in my cheek a little bit this morning, and we've had a little bit of sport and banter about it, and that's all very good, well and good. But it's actually quite a serious um, topic. This because earlier this year on BBC Three Counties Radio, we did hear from the mother who's trying to get the law changed after her teenage daughter was killed when she was knocked down by an 89-year-old driver with dementia. Robert Gifford from Stony Stratford is Chief Executive of the Parliamentary Advisory Council for Transport Safety. Robert, we've got an ageing population and the number of older people driving on our roads is going up. Are we getting to a point where drivers should be tested to see if they're fit enough behind the wheel? I think we're getting to a point where we should have a national form of assessment for older drivers, yes. Um, I mean, the, the, when you look at the accident involvement figures, you will find that the two high-risk groups are those between 18 and 20 and those 
once you're over 75. Um, and of course, once you're over 75, you're more likely to die in a car crash because your body is less able to sustain damage. Mm. So I think there is a case for looking at whether there is more help we could give to older drivers in terms of, um, you know, are, are, you, are you still able to look everywhere? Do you need some additional mirror to help you see what's coming up behind you? Are there alternatives to your car in the first place? Could you team up with a friend? Could you hire a taxi? Could you get the bus? Could you get the train? So there is more assessment and more help we can give to older drivers. I'm very reluctant to back calls for um, you know, stopping people driving at certain ages because actually what older drivers do tend to do is they self-regulate. They say, I don't like to drive at night. I don't like to drive when it's wet. I don't like to drive when it's the rush hour. So they change their behavior in order to keep themselves safe. Um, and if we haven't got accident data to suggest that they're a problem causing accidents, then we've got very limited argument to actually ban them from driving altogether. But then you do, you know, when you do get older and your faculties do sometimes go, you're not always the best judge. Of, of, of how capable you are, are you? Absolutely, and that's why, for example, a number of local authorities have set up assessment courses of the type that I'm talking about where right. you can either refer yourself or you can be referred by your GP or your family or by a police officer who might see you doing something daft and say, Mr Gifford, I think you need a bit of help here. Um, and, and, but at the moment, those courses are they're, they're rather haphazard. Mm. They're, they're conducted in some parts of the country, but not everywhere. And we just think there should be a national course available that would help older drivers to keep mobile, because the crucial point that one of your uh, interview, interviewees referred to is the car also offers people a mobility and a lifeline to get out. Should these tests be made compulsory after, after a certain age, say 70, for example? Well, I think, that, again, the evidence is that, that you know, we, we are actually all getting older and keeping healthier. Mm. Um, the original cut-off point of 70 was based on a kind of average life expectancy, but now, you know, as we see, um, male life expectancy is rising year by year. Um, <clears throat> the, the current law says that after, uh, after 70, you renew your license every three years and you do uh, self-assess, unless you've got a specific medical condition that needs to be reported to the DVLA by your doctor. Um, I think there's more that we could do to make stuff available online to people to help them do it. There's also more that we could do to remind doctors mm. about their role here. When somebody comes to see you with uh, a physical or a, a physical illness, should you should ask them, are you still driving? Is it causing you any difficulty? But unfortunately, doctors don't tend to get the time to do that in their, uh, in their consultations. Robert, thank you very much. It's Robert Gifford there from Stony Stratford. He's the Chief Executive of the Parliamentary Advisory Council for Transport Safety. Uh, and we have been kind of having a little bit of banter about this, but it, it, it does have a serious edge to it, doesn't it? Because uh, people do lose their lives. I know Jonathan's going to be uh, carrying on this conversation after nine o'clock, so do stick around for that. Mick is in Watford. Good morning, Mick. Morning. Mick, uh, what, what's your take on this? Well, you've been a bit ages, and really, I mean, the, the chat, the last... Bro- Mick, sorry, can I ask, are you on hands-free or something? Pardon? Uh, yes. Are you on hands-free or speaker... Oh, I'll take you off speaker. Would you mind? This sounds awful. Yeah, I'll take you off speaker. Good lad. Thank you, mate. Go on. Um, the, chat, the last chat that spoke was very, I thought, very balanced uh, argument and very sensible. We are all living longer. We're all fitter. We've all got... Um, we, well, we're generally better and more able to get about and do things. Yes. But who are the worst drivers on the road, statistically? Go on, tell me. Well, you know who they are. 
under 25s. Yeah. They're the people that have all the accidents. I've said that we should that you shouldn't be allowed to drive under the age of 23. Raise the driving well, limit. I didn't know you'd say that. I didn't know you'd say that, but I was going to say 25. Let's split the difference, call it 24, and everybody's oh, happy. I, I, Mick, I totally agree with you. I think that 17, 18, 19 is too young to drive a car, especially for young lads, because they're full of testosterone. They've got all these hormones coursing through their bodies. And women. Some of the worst drivers on the road are young ladies. And what evidence do you have for that, Mick? Well, I drive... When I go out to golf in the mornings... They're some of the worst drivers. They, they're, they're so impatient. I have seen, and you never see this with a gentleman, I have seen a woman driving on the motorway doing her makeup as she's driving along. They're, they're aggressive as well. They're, they're some of the most aggressive drivers on the road. Women in 4 by 4s Oh, yeah. They're Tiny women in big cars. <laughs> <laughs> Mick, listen, I'm going to make even more enemies. I'm going to shut up before I get into any more trouble. Mick, thank you very much. I do agree that, tw- that 18, 19, it's too young to drive. I don't know if I necessarily agree with what Mick's saying about women, but I have, I've seen that. I've seen a woman driving on the motorway doing her makeup On the motorway! Incredible. A few texts here, Ian. If you live in a village, you can go three to five days and see no bus. You need to drive, most of all, we older people, most of us are better drivers than you 30-somethings. From Brian. Stop driving at 65. Many of us, like myself, at 67 still have to drive to do my 70 hours a week. It's from Richard. Ian, you're wrong. The young... Whoa, hang on a second. The younger you learn to drive, the better. My daughter has been driving since 12... I trust her in my Porsche. She's a safer and better driver than her mum. Right, Stu, we're going to follow this up. We're going to follow this up. I want to see see a 15-year-old driving your Porsche, Stu. That's just insane. Wow, what a packed show. I enjoyed that today. I hope you did. Back tomorrow at six o'clock. Thank you for being such good sports and having a little bit of banter with me. Always fun to, to wake up. With a little bit of a debate like that, please don't handbag me. Jonathan Vernon-Smith is up next. Ta-ta. Getting beds, hearts and bugs talking. This is BBC Three Counties Radio. Thank you, Ian.